Hi, this is Jalen for Dobbs, where tire buying is easy. At GoToDobbs.com, shop brands, sizes, pricing, and our amazing deals. With 40-plus locations, get same-day install. For tires, it's Dobbs. For deals you can use, click on GoToDobbs.com now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Time now for the BK and Ferrario podcast. Presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Thomas to Cairo for the hat trick. He scores an empty net goal. And if you've got a hat, chuck it at your radio. A hat trick night for Jordan Cairo. It's the trailer. Thomas to Cairo. Score! Great passing by these three. Jordan Cairo nets his 30th of the year. Pulls the Blues to within That's one. That's a lot of goals. And the season's not done yet. You know, he's got a lot of ability and uh, a lot of potential, you know. I don't think he's hit his ceiling yet at all. I think there's still room for improvement. I think he will improve. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Grant Francis, I'm Brandon Kylie. There it's we BK go. Now and you're Ferrario on. here on one. Am I on? Yeah, you're on now. Mike, can you guys hear me? Is this thing on? Check, 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 I mean, check. Technically, one, we're doing the what everybody wants and just turns our mics off. That's Alex Ferrario. Let's try this one more time. He's Grant Francis. I'm Brandon Hello. Kylie. It's great to be on with you on a Monday morning when. We had a boatload of sports to watch over the weekend here in St. Louis, and we begin with a great weekend for Jordan Cairo. Alex, he had four goals in two games since we last spoke. He is now up to 30 on the season. This is a big milestone for Jordan Cairo in a season that's had quite a few ups and downs, I think it's fair to say. There was a point in time where I think everybody in St. Louis was disappointed with the way that Jordan Cairo has had performed at this point, though. I I'm hard pressed to say that this is a disappointing season for a 24 year old kid who has improved markedly in certain areas of his game. He has opened his game up, especially on the power play specifically. Now you look at it. He's got more than 30 goals. He's got more than 60 points. I'm going to give you the entire list, Alex of players this season that are under the age of 25 that can match that criteria. Elias Pettersson, Jason Robertson, Jack Hughes, Tim Stutzel, Jordan Cairo. He's one of five so far this year that have done it. If that's not impressive enough, here's the list of superstars that did that last year. This is the group that he is now joining. Austin Matthews, Sebastian, Sebastian Ajo, Matthew Kachuk, Alex Dabrinkit, Andrei Svechnikov, that was tough for me to say. Troy Terry. God bless you. Mitch Marner. <laughs> Tage Thompson. Kirill Kaprizov. Again, Brady Kachuk is the final one. This is a list of superstars that we're talking about here. Is there still growth to be had in Jordan Kairou's game? No doubt. None of us are saying that he's a fully formed player. You heard right there from Craig Burby over the weekend. He said the same thing. He has not hit his ceiling. But when I watch Jordan Kairou this season... What I see, it's different 
but I see the type of player that you build around the way that we saw early on in Vladimir Tarasenko's career. This is a guy that you build around. There are clear deficiencies. You have to account for that as you build the rest of your roster. Very rarely do you see a perfect player. A lot of them have some issues. I remember earlier in the season, Alex, we were talking about Austin Matthews. There was a situation where there was a fight taking place or he got like an instigator situation. He didn't want to get into the fight. His teammate took care of it. A lot of people called him out for that. And that's Austin Matthews. I don't want him fighting. Jordan Kyrie's got some question marks, but he's a good player. He's one that I would like to build around. Now that he's got 30 goals, I think it's yet another reminder of the type of player that you should be building around. What'd you see from Kyrie this weekend? What have you seen from him this season, Alex? A, a lot of improvement. And just because you went all BK with numbers for us there, can I add on to that, sir? Yes. Um, 2016 draft class. We all remember that was the one with Matthew Kachuk and Austin Matthews. Um, in the last two seasons, he ranks fourth among players from that draft class in points. He's got 136. Matthew Kachuk leads the way with 191. So once again, some real good company to, company to be in considering you were a second round pick. I'm seeing a lot of improvement with Jordan Cairo. It's never it's never going to be perfect, like you said. That's just the, the path that he is on in the National Hockey League, but there's slow increments that you can improve with. Uh, middle of the season, we were all talking about how he just doesn't care about the puck if it's not in the offensive zone. Well, that game last night, and then the highlights that I saw from the Columbus game, he was winning puck battles. He was jumping into the scrum a little bit, and he was back-checking, which is something that we shoot at with Jordan Cairo. The other thing about him, too, is you crossed the 30-goal plateau this season. You had 27 last year. We all remember first half Jordan Cairo felt he was unstoppable. I think it was 17 goals in his first 40 games. You felt like this kid was going to put up 35, 40 goals. And then he slowed down in the final 42 games. He scored 10 goals. You're picking up the pace in the second half. That's another area of improvement for Jordan Cairo. Barubi's comments were, were spot on there where you continue to see those improvements with this player. And I'm with you. You build around this player. But you do have to continue to make those improvements. You don't want to get to the point where you're, okay, I've reached this threshold where now I'm a 30-goal scorer. This will do. Because there's always more with them. And if you want to be at that superstar status, and look, none of these guys are great defensively. So don't think that what I'm saying is Selkie Trophy candidates. But more responsibility with the puck is what Craig Berube wants. More intelligence where you're putting the puck on the ice and better positions for your teammates. That's how you thrive. And at least in this last stretch, probably going all the way back to pre-trade deadline. I think Jordan Kyra has been making those improvements. Yeah. From the three, one, four guys, the question for the future is will Jordan Kyra ever be a player that is a net positive rather than a net negative. All right. If you guys want to do this, we can do it. Jordan Kyra last season was a plus 10 for the blues when he was on the ice. Plus 10. That was one year ago. I'm not talking about ancient history here. He was a positive player for the Blues when he was on the ice one year ago. What's changed? Well, the team's not good this year. Well, and, and Jordan Kyra had a really terrible start to the season. You got to think about it like this, too, though. The Blues have allowed now 20 empty netters on and the season. And he's been on the ice for every one of them. Well, yeah, because at the end of the game, if you're trying to score a goal, you want your best goal scorer out there. So 20 of those minuses that he has on his stat sheet this season have been from empty Would net situations. Would you say that Braden Shin is a net positive for the Blues? Yeah. He's a negative 33 on the year. All like of they, the top players. to suggest that he's a bad player. It's bad situation right now for, for this team. I also will <laughs> add this. I, I think that Bill Belichick's one of the best football minds in the history of the NFL. 
And the way that he scouts, the way that he teaches his organization to scout is by doing this. He's written about this a lot, or there's been a lot that's been written about him saying this. Says, don't tell me what a player can't do. Tell me what he can do, and I'll put him in situations to do that. Jordan Cairo, don't tell me about the deficiencies defensively. I know that. Tell me what he can do and what Jordan Cairo can do for the Blues right now. And I think will continue to evolve even to a greater degree as he moves forward is he is an incredible playmaker. And that includes both his goal scoring prowess and also his ability to create for others. He's a really good passer. This is the part of Vladimir Tarasenko's game that never really got as much credit as it probably should have. He created for others as much as he created for himself. Kyra has some of that in his game as well. The speed will create space for other players. It creates time for other players. His shot creates opportunities for other players. We've seen that when Torpchenko's at times been on that top line over the last week or so. That stuff that he does, those things that he brings to the table, that's what makes him unique as a player. And it's why you build around a player like Jordan Cairo. It's why you gave him more than $8 million per year. And so when he hits this 30 goal plateau, I think it's worth discussing because I'm looking back. I gave you guys the names that have done this over the last year, this year or last. I could go back the last 10 years. We did so before the show. Every single one of them to some degree was a player you should build around. Maybe it's not the staple of your franchise. I'm not sure Jordan Kyrou is going to be that. I think the Blues are hoping that's Robert Thomas. But it's somebody that if they're in your top six, you can win a championship with them on your roster. I believe Jordan Kyrou is going to be one of those players. I'm still skeptical with that because he's one of those players that you want out there on the ice because he's a difference maker. But if you become a liability, that's where it becomes a problem. And that's the difference. Now, if you can protect him with a really smart sound centerman that protects his game, then you absolutely can. But that's where Robert Thomas has to come in. And that's the next step for him. But to your point about Bill Belichick's comments of don't tell me what he can't do. Tell me what he can do, what he can't do though. And I know you just said, don't do it, but If that's his skill where he's the offensive threat and he's putting up points and we can see him go on stretches where he scores a hat trick and then a goal the next night, you can't go on a stretch where you're silent for 10 straight games. And I know everybody does that, but prior to the Blues winning against San Jose and Columbus and then, of course, last night's unfortunate loss to Vegas, you had a stretch of 10 games where he put up four points. And I think he only scored once in that stretch. And on top of that, and I know we just did this with the empty net goals, but just devil's advocates will follow along with me here. He was a minus in every single game. That's what I look at from a coaching mindset. I need Jordan Cairo out there 18, 19, 20 minutes a night because of his ability to change the outcome of the game with the puck on his stick. But I also can't have him making blatant mistakes that result in the other team getting odd man rushes and him not creating offense. So that's the growing pains that Craig Berube's going through. But what I love about the position that they're in this season, it doesn't matter. Like, let Jordan Cairo take his lumps this season and figure out what that feels like so he knows how to improve on it this offseason. If this was a playoff race, we'd be a lot more pissed off with Jordan Cairo. But right now, I don't care. Put him in that spot. Cairo's not the only player that was impressive over the weekend. Colton Pareko has put together a really solid, I think, few weeks at this point, maybe month, honestly. In his last seven games in particular, uh, you could pull that out and it makes it look pretty damn good for Colton Pareko yep. numbers-wise. One goal, two assists. He's a plus four on the ice, which is impressive given the fact that this is not a particularly great team right now. He's averaging almost 22 minutes per game. And Alex, if you look at the underlying numbers, they're also pretty good. 
for Colton Pareko in this stretch of seven games. The Blues have had 55% of the shots when he's on the ice at five on five. Again, given the fact that this is not a team that's putting up a ton of shots in general right now, that's one of the best marks on the team. It's not what you expect from a guy that's eating up 22 minutes per game in this stretch. Here's what Chris Kerber, the voice of the Blues, had to say about what he's seen from Pareko lately and what he means for the Blues team. He said this earlier today on the opening drive. When I was talking to Al about him, this is this is something people need to realize. The moment you move a guy like that, the moment you move a six foot six defenseman that can skate, that can break up plays, that yes, you'd like to see be a little more physical, but that can keep up with the best players in the league on a regular basis. The moment you move him is the moment you start going, gee, we got to go find a guy like that. Yeah, and it's very difficult to find guys like that. And I know everybody's argument with that. And, well, at least I can find somebody who plays with more grit than Colton Pareko. That's not even the truth anymore. Because I think Colton Pareko, what, he's taken a cross-checking penalty in two of his last three games, which is not Colton Pareko. But he's laying the hit more. He's skating more. He's taking shots more. I really wonder, and to me, this goes all the way back to that San Jose Sharks game right before the trade deadline, of course, when his name's in the rumors. Maybe that sparked him. Maybe he just realized that this team is selling off assets, and he's a big part of the struggles this year. But something changed with him to where you watch him play and you say, we can get on board with this. Because not only is he not becoming a liability like he was in the early portion of the season in his own zone, but he's creating more offense. He's more noticeable in the offensive zone. That breakaway goal that Sammy Blay scored was solely because of Colton Pareko. Last night, he had two shots on goal and created the start of one of those goals. So you're getting 22 plus minutes a night. You're getting a guy who is more crisp in his own zone and somebody who's skating a lot more. And Al McKennis is absolutely right. This is what I've been saying all along. You can't trade him because when you do, now you're going to have to reset the clock and see if we can find somebody else like that. He's Alex Ferrario. That is Grant Francis. And I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. We did get a text from the 314. Seriously, you guys starting with Jordan Cairo today? The Battlehawks and SC are way more prevalent than anything that the Blues have to offer right now. One of the Blues' most important players just got to the 30-goal threshold, so I felt like that was worth starting with today. Coming up in 15 minutes, though, we will discuss both City SC and the Battle. Hawks big weekend for both of the local uh, teams we'll get to that coming up in about 15 minutes but coming up next speaking about the local squads Adam Wainwright pitched for Team USA over the weekend did his performance do enough to alleviate our concerns about his velocity not so much for me I'll explain next you're on 101 ESPN we're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN And it's Adam Wainwright, a 41-year-old from Brunswick, Georgia, who's about to begin his 18th Major League season, pitching in his first WBC. British Commonwealth, and that's how Trace is eligible. That's how he puts on a Great Britain uniform and launches a home run in the World Baseball Classic. Trace Thompson gives Great Britain the 1-0 lead. This was playoff atmosphere, and I hadn't pitched in nine days. I was a little amped up. I just had to get back under under control. I'm I'm a pitch maker. I'm not going to blow anybody away, but I, if I execute, I can get anybody out. So that was just just a reset of the mind. Just go out there and and uh, and just make pitches. You know, execute pitches. 
That's what it sounded like on Fox as Adam Wainwright made his debut in the World Baseball Classic on Saturday night. Threw four innings, gave up five hits, just one earned run. You heard it right there on the call with that home run by Trace Thompson alongside Alex Ferrario and Grant Francis. I'm Brandon Kiley. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. Alex, we had a lot of questions about Adam Wainwright going into his start on Saturday night, most of them revolving around his velocity. He was down 84-ish miles per hour in his first start of the spring. He got up to about 86 in his second start, and we were wondering, all right, is that going to continue trekking up? Is it going to be something that stagnates here? What are we expecting velocity-wise from Adam Wainwright? Well, on Saturday, the numbers were not super encouraging in my opinion. His final numbers, he averaged 86 miles per hour on a sinker, 85 miles per hour on only five four-seam fastballs thrown. That's still down about two to three miles per hour from last year, what he averaged on the season. And maybe more concerning to me, he did not throw a single pitch of more than 87 miles per hour. He topped out at 87 on Saturday. And what he did instead is in that first inning, he was throwing a lot of sinkers, and then he changed up and he said, okay, I'm going to have to live on my cutter and my curveball. And again, you look at the numbers, not so bad. Four innings, one earned run. That's kind of what you expect out of Wayno at this point in the spring. But he's also going up against a lineup where the guys that he's throwing against, I mean, they're three and four hole hitters I'd literally never heard of going into that game. So it, it's tough, man. It, it's difficult to be able to say you feel great about where he's at right now. If I was at like a five on my level of concern going into Saturday with Wayno. I'm up to like a seven now. It it did not decrease my level of concern because the velocity at some point that's going to catch up with him. He's totally right that when he's on his game, when he's making his pitches, he can get anybody out. The problem is consistency. You can, you can get guys out that way, but can you consistently do so against the major league talent, especially early in the season that the Cardinals are going to be going up against My answer right now is a resounding no. You can't do this at 86 miles per hour on average. It's just that's too low in today's modern game. Yeah, the exit velocity for some of those hitters against Wayno was the concerning part because, I mean, they were hit pretty damn hard, and that's where you get concerned with it. I still feel like, though, I'm right around a four or a five if I'm in my concernometer just because of what he said there, he said, I'm a pitch maker. And he knows that if the velocity's not there, he's going to find a way to adjust to it. And I do give a little bit of benefit of the doubt to Adam Wainwright, which again, I guess comes off as me making excuses for him, but it was a world baseball classic. His first start, he was getting the first start for team USA. And we've heard him talk about how much it means to him that he is a part of this team. So were there nerves going into that start for Wayno? That's why I feel like I, I'm I'm pushing it out one more start for me to where I'm actually going to look at this and say, okay, I'm starting to get concerned because I don't know what that next matchup looks like for him starting. Maybe there's a little bit more impactful bats. You get the nerves down a little bit more, and you can find a way to kind of ease yourself back into it rather than that first start. The reason it makes me even more concerned in a way that because of what you're talking about, I would think he would have been amped up for this game. And if you're amped up and you're only getting at most, you're topping out at 87, that's not ideal, dude. And like, you're right. He is a pitch maker. I'm totally with you. But you look back to 2018, 2019, he was a pitch maker then too. And I know the curveball was a big part of the problem then. And now we can kind of live off of that. He had ERAs of four, six, five, one, four, five, and four, two over a four year stretch when he was still a pitch maker. This is not like this guy just randomly decided to become that at the age of 40. No, he's been that for his entire career, and he's an excellent pitcher at that. 
the reason why all of this is a bit concerning to me is because if he's going to go into the regular season and he's going to be sitting 86, man, it puts that much more pressure on every other pitch because you just you can't live that way in today's game, man. You're not going to get any sort of swing and miss with it. And his fastball has not been over the last few years his best pitch. So it's not a huge deal. But it's kind of like having a jab. You got to be able to use that to make your other punches a little bit more effective. And if you lose it, now suddenly they can they can sit on everything else that you're going to be throwing because they don't even have to worry about the 86 mile per hour heater that's coming in. So I, I'm concerned. It's not the end of the world. It's not something where you look at it and you say to yourself like, okay, Wayno's just going to be terrible this year as a result. I don't think that's going to be the case. It is worrisome to me, though. And if I was at a five on Friday, I feel like I'm at like a six or a seven now. My concern level went up a bit. I am continuing to have the uh, I'm giving Wayno the benefit of the doubt, because if he wasn't a proven pitcher at this point in his career, I would be out of 10. Like it would be red alarm, like sound every alarm possible. We should be talking about Jake Woodford as a starter over Wayno if I wasn't giving him the benefit of the doubt. But I am. And so that's where we're at with him. Speaking of the World Baseball Classic, Alex, Team USA lost yesterday. (laughs) Didn't just lose. They got their butts whipped against Mexico. And, man, it was in part because of their pitching. So, Brady Singer, if you watched any of this game, you, you noticed this and you were going along with it. Brady Singer was struggling, man. He looked bad. There was something that was out of whack mechanically with him. Smoltz was mentioning this on the broadcast. He just didn't have it. He's throwing about 25 pitches. Joey Menez, Menendez has uh, come into the game. Earlier in the game, he had already hit a home run, and this is a dude that's just on fire right now. Everybody knew watching on television, everybody knew in the ballpark what was about to take place. Menendez hit a three-run home run, and Team USA at that point was basically done. There were real questions. Should Mark DeRosa, the manager for Team USA, take Singer out of the game in this spot? And DeRosa decided not to. And the reason why is because Team USA told the Royals, we're going to make sure that Brady Singer gets the work at the World Baseball Classic that he would be getting if he was in spring training if he was still with the Royals. And so Ken Rosenthal wrote a piece earlier today over on The Athletic. I want to get your thoughts on this, Alex, because he basically calls out Team USA, the, the entire, like, backdrop of the world baseball classic being these guys trying to get into regular season shape. Here's what he wrote. Team USA comprised entirely of major leaguers is caught between trying to win the tournament and trying to prepare its players for the regular season. This is an inherent conflict and those goals raise frequent and existential questions regarding the world baseball classic. The question is if the U S cannot give full effort, why even bother playing? Team USA's pitching staff, according to Ken Rosenthal, is essentially is a B team. None of the 14 American pitchers who received Cy Young votes last season are even on the roster. Meanwhile, the 15 pitchers under DeRosa's watch are under various restrictions that are imposed by their parent clubs from MLB. Starters need to reach prescribed pitch counts as they build up for the regular season. Most relievers who complete an inning cannot return for another inning, and none of those relievers are allowed to pitch on back-to-back days. Alex, as you watch this and you think about trying to manage this way, the primary goal for Mark DeRosa is not winning. The primary goal for him is essentially being an AHL coach for an NHL organization. And you're saying, all right, I'm going to get certain guys in certain situations. And if we win, great. If not, at least we got them their work. 
how do you make that work if you're Mark DeRosa? You don't. You don't make that work. And and I, I'd love to know the mindset of other managers in the World Baseball Classic because a lot of other teams have Major League Baseball players a part of their roster, and a lot of them are pitchers that probably are on those schedules because this should be spring training for them. But I don't have any doubts in my mind that Dominican Republic is going pitch limits with certain players because they got to make sure that they get their amount that the team is designated. They're going out there to win. I, I one feel bad for Mark DeRosa because you are put in a tough spot to where you have an entire roster made up of major league baseball pitchers to where they've got to get on that regime. But like, let's also call a spade a spade here. They didn't have the sexiest pitching staff on their roster with team USA. So not only are you gifted a Santa Claus naughty or nice list of, Hey, this guy can only do this at this time. And we want this guy to be pitching here. And this guy needs to do this. People talk about scripting for managers. Talk about a script. He has to follow it to a T every yeah, single night, no matter the situation. It's like Steven Spielberg out here. He's just <laughs> handing out these things to guys. Here's what you're doing tonight. And you're only going to this length that don't try and go off script on us here, but they weren't giving the, the, the excitement, sexy Team USA roster in terms of the pitching staff. I mean, Lance Lynn would probably be the biggest name in terms of starting pitcher on this list right there with Miles Michaelis and Adam Wainwright. So as much as we talk about that, and you're right, he's set up to fail. Shouldn't we also be talking about the offense? Because the offense should be the reason this team's winning games. And frankly, they struggled against Mexico yesterday. They did. And like that, that happens against for, from offenses. Sometimes it's what we've talked about a million different times with the Cardinals in the postseason. It's like it's really difficult in a one or two game sample to really break down whether or not an offense is good or not. It, sometimes that just happens. Pitching is so good now in the modern game, whether it's here or elsewhere. I've got a tough time with that. The, the bigger thing is like conceptually speaking, can the World Baseball Classic exist if Team USA is playing under these kinds of constraints because it's taking place during spring, it makes it really difficult to manage from an organizational perspective. And I guess then the question becomes like, do you take all major league players? Do you consider constructing the roster in a different way? I, I don't know. I don't know what you do. Do you go minor league players for That's a world baseball class? Maybe. I, I don't know. Because in that scenario, maybe then you could use guys that are more prepared. Do you consider pulling up amateurs like you're using college players, but they're in the middle of their season right now as well? All of them are going to have restrictions. Tough. You might have to go to the point of getting retired players to be a part of it. And, and that's where things get a little more interesting. Like, if you look at some of the other countries around the world, the way that they're playing in this thing, they have some major league players. Those players have restrictions, especially on the pitching side of things. Team USA is entirely constructed of major league players. And so at least you have some flexibility with some of your players on these other rosters. Team USA has zero flexibility with any of their players on the roster. The guys don't want to come in with men on base. They want to come in for a clean inning. If you're getting a starter in relief, he's got to throw multiple innings, to get the work that was required on that day. It's tough. And so the world baseball classic, is it a ton of fun? Have I enjoyed the hell out of watching these games? Yes. The environments are amazing, and it feels like a playoff atmosphere every single time you sit down to watch. But the way that Team USA is constructed makes it very difficult to watch this thing and be like, yeah, everything is about winning. Because for Team USA, it's clearly not. And you're seeing that center stage last night. I also don't know that Team USA is getting out of their own pool. I'm kind of there with you. Last night was a big loss for them, and Smoltz was trying to describe how, oh, this is only a big deal if they end up losing another game. Yeah, no bleep. (laughs) (laughs) The thing is, it eliminates any sort of margin for error. So I'll be curious to see what this ends up looking like in the long run. I do 
do think it's going to have some unintended consequences later on as we go down the road, three, four years down the road. Coming up next, the biggest game for City, I thought, was this past weekend. Why? Because you start 2-0, and and now we really get to find out on the road in a tough environment if you're legit. Well, they passed every test with flying colors on Saturday. We'll talk about City's big weekend and the Battlehawks once again breaking another record here in St. Louis. We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Back inside looking for Klaus. He fanned on it. Stroud out in front. And we're level at one. Jared Stroud finds the back of the net for the second time in 2023. Right into the back post. And a chance to make it 2-1, and they do. It seemed like it was going to be a chance for Portland to clear. But the new kids on the block are singing and dancing again as they've taken their first lead of the night. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Grant Francis, I'm Brandon Kiley. That's what it sounded like on Apple TV on Saturday night as City gets their third straight win. They have started the season 3-0. and And Alex, they're the only MLS expansion team to start 3-0 and other than the 2009 Seattle Sounders. If you want some context, maybe this is a good, it's portending good things for City. The Seattle Sounders in 2009, after starting 3-0, and Finished third in the Western Conference, just one point out of first place. They were fourth overall in the league, and they ended up making the playoffs at a time when only eight teams were able to do so. I thought Saturday, to me, was the most impressed I've been so far with City. And the reason why is because game one, man, the press, nobody knows what you're going to play with, what your style looks like. They don't have the scouting report yet. Uh, Maybe you did take Austin a little by surprise and you're playing with all of this emotion, this excitement of a new team playing together in MLS for the first time together, right? So you get that. And then game two, it's it's the home opener. It's the debut for everybody. And in those two games, you were also, let's be totally honest, kind of gifted a goal in each of them. Game three, you're on the road. You're in a tough environment in Portland, a team that's okay, not great. Last year, they were towards the bottom, but not a bad team by any stretch of the imagination. There's going to be a tough environment for you to go out. You don't have the same excitement that you had in your first game or in your first home game. And then they go out and they just played an overall really sound performance, man. They had a set piece that ended up working out well for them. They had uh, basically they were on the attack and they were able to get the other goal. I, I I was more impressed with them in this game because of the way that they won than I was in either of the first two. And that is not to suggest that I wasn't impressed by the first two games. I, it's officially time to change our expectations on what city can be this season. Yeah, full transparency. I was at an event doing an auction, so I missed the first half of this, but I got back in the car once the second half started and I was listening to it and... It was a really impressive win because Portland's not an easy team to go up against. In Portland, their first two games of the season, 
they had shutouts. So this is not a team that just gives up goals willy-nilly. And St. Louis City SC was able to... This was one of those those gritty, grinded-out performances for them. And you're right. This was the most impressive victory considering what the other two you did. I kind of anticipated the way they performed in their first game on the home field, mostly because it's the first home game. You're expecting that environment. But to go into Atlanta the way that you started the season off in that environment and win, great. This one, though, you're three games in. People are starting to anticipate the way that you play. We talked with Taylor Twelman last week, who was skeptical that you can keep up the same way that they've been winning matches all season long. Granted, it is three games into the season, but the style is still the same. You're still suffocating offensively. I think they split the uh, possession at 50-50 at the end of that match, which is impressive also against a Portland team that made the postseason a couple of years ago. So a strong game defensively also to be able to tighten things up where they gave up two goals in their last match. I'm starting to more and more believe that what we're seeing, seeing just isn't a honeymoon period for City SC and that this is what they were plotting out all year long or leading up to their start that this is how they were going to build their roster. It's impressive right now. They lead MLS with eight goals on the season. Um, If you're looking at where they are in the standings right now, they're right at the top of the standings at three Oh and Oh, I didn't expect this. I was skeptical of what they would be. Vegas was skeptical of what they would be. And if they're like, we've seen the Chiefs play the nobody believed in us card. We saw Georgia in the national championship play the nobody believed in us card. If City ends up actually getting into the postseason or at least being competitive this season, and I fully expect that at this point, they are a team that can actually play the nobody believes in us card. Yeah. And it's true because nobody thought this team would be competitive, much less make the postseason. They had the longest odds to win the MLS Cup before the season. There's no team in all of MLS that had longer odds in MLS. And frankly, I think that was deserved. It was deserved because nobody knew if this style would work. Nobody knew if they would be able to coalesce as a team as quickly as they wanted to. Nobody really knew what this was going to look like. And it has exceeded any reasonable expectations so far this year. So good on them. An impressive performance on Saturday. But they were not the only ones that were in action over the weekend here (laughs) locally. The Battle Hawks also once again, broke another record. Here is Anthony Becht before the game yesterday. There was some holes in the stands back in 2008. We weren't very good, to be quite honest with you. This is electric. Uh, St. Louis has been dying for a football team. We brought it back here. I'm excited that they get to see a really good product as well. These guys are hyped up to be here, and uh, it's a special place. The Battle Hawks get another win at home. Ka-ka! <laughs> they end up winning that one 24 to 11. It was the home debut for the Battle Hawks. And Alex, the the real story here is not so much the way that the game went, but the fact that they broke the XFL record. They broke the spring football record for attendance. More than 38,000 of you ended up going to that St. Louis Battlehawks game yesterday at the Dome. Just amazing. Like, just absolutely incredible. I continue to be surprised by the amount of interest, not surprised, impressed by the amount of interest that there is in the St. Louis Battlehawks. I don't think there's another city in America that has the level of interest in spring football, at least 
non-college spring football Mm -hmm. as St. Louis does. It's amazing. I I don't know what else to say at this point. I heard the analyst on on, uh, ESPN yesterday because I was watching the beginning of it, you know, just to see the crowd and hear it loud as it was. And the analyst said, I am surprised at, at the response of these battle hawks in terms of the fan base. And I'm thinking... Are you, though? Because we saw this three years ago. I am because three years ago, it was so close to the Rams leaving that I was like, okay, it makes sense to me that everybody is so frustrated and they want to give a big middle finger to Stan Kroenke. Like that, that was not in the least bit surprising to me. I was at that game and the environment was nuts, dude, uh, a few years ago. This time around, I am a little more surprised than I was last time because I thought we kind of like not got it out of our system, but we proved it already. There, there was nothing that St. Louis had left to prove, and yet they keep doing it. They it, just keep doing it. It's one of those things that it's just you have to fill that void of football, and a lot of people, I would imagine, in St. Louis, because I'm one of them, have not found an NFL team to grasp onto, and of course you got your college football team with the Missouri Tigers, but you know it's a little bit further away than the local St. Louis team, and that's the part that cracks me up because, yes, they're your local team, but they're based in Texas, so they're, they're not your local team. But the, the response was there. And, of course, at Enterprise Center last night, you know, we were talking about it in pregame that, you know, you got this full crowd at uh, the Dome for the Battlehawks game. You would imagine they'll make their way over to the Blues game, and they did. And we talked last week about, you know, what the intentions are with the Battlehawks. And we brought up Stan Kroenke, and we got a ton of texts that said, ah, Stan Kroenke has nothing to do with this. We just love football. Guys, it took five seconds for the Jumbotron and Enterprise Center to show the final score of the Battlehawks game for the entire crowd at Enterprise Center to start chanting Kroenke sucks. You don't have to say that it's not about Kroenke, by the way. It's okay. It can be. If that's what it is, good for you, man. If that is your motive to go to these games, great. Everybody's got a different motive. Take it from somebody who has a lot of hatred in their heart. Hatred can fuel a lot of fire. And listen, if that's what's doing it for you, great. If you just wanted to go to a sporting event and it's a reasonably priced sporting event for you to take your your kids to the game with, great. If you just wanted a reason and you're 25 years old and you just wanted to go down to Saint, go downtown, get drunk for the day and watch a cool sporting event at the Dome, like, again, Hell good yes. for you. <laughs> Whatever your reason is to going down to the Dome to watch this team, it's awesome. And it makes for such a cool environment. And again, I, I said this last week, two weeks ago, whatever. I think it just comes down to this. People want to have fun and they want to watch sports. And in St. Louis, we do both pretty damn well. And this is fun and it's about sports. We're having fun, guys. We are having fun. We are a good having time. fun. Coming up in 10 minutes, we'll talk to Katie Wu, Cardinals insider for the Athletic. Want to get her latest update from spring training for the Cardinals, specifically with the way that she views the outfield competition right now with a couple of guys off in the World Baseball Classic. But coming up next, 314 399 9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line for questions and answers here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. You've got questions. We may have the answers. Maybe text 314-399-9646. PK and Ferrario's questions and answers on 101 ESPN. Brought to you by James Carlton with State Farm. Have drivers under 25 on your insurance? Save hundreds of dollars a year with CarltonInsurance.net. 
We'll talk to our friend of the Cardinals insider for the Athletic, Katie Wu, coming up here in about five minutes or so. But right now it is time for questions and answers. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line from the 314. Guys, did you have any issues with the NCAA selection this year? Mizzou and Illinois seem about right to me, but was there anything specifically that stood out to you? If there was one thing that stood out to me, Alex, it would have been uh, Texas A&M where they ended up landing. I think they were a seven seed in the NCAA tournament. Texas A&M had a really good season and I thought they deserved to be like a five seed. So that was the one that stood out to me as significantly lighter than expected. Was there anything for you that stood out? Yeah. And I mean, I know it's just probably bias when I texted you, but Tennessee shouldn't be where they're at. How they get that much higher of a seed over Mizzou after Mizzou beats them twice in Tennessee baffles me. So here's the thing. Like if Tennessee should have had a lower seed, if they were not a very good team, then Missouri also would have been docked as a result of that. Like Tennessee being considered good is also good for Mizzou. Does that make sense? Yeah. Cause it means that your it. resume is better by beating a higher level of opponent. Tennessee was an excellent team this year. Defensively, some would argue the best team in the country on the defensive side of the ball. So I, I didn't have an issue with that necessarily. If there was one worth griping about for Mizzou in the SEC, Mizzou beat Kentucky head to head. The resumes were not all that dissimilar between the two teams. So maybe you could argue Mizzou as a six seed instead of a seven. But honestly, I thought they did a pretty good job this year. They put Alabama as the overall number one. I think they were deserving of that. They didn't give Kansas. I uh, saw people upset about the Kansas situation. In, in KC, yeah. which personally for me, I enjoy that. <laughs> um, they gave that to Houston. I thought Houston was arguably the better team this year. Um, so that that would be the one thing. I think KU had a better resume. So if you wanted to, if you wanted to be frustrated by anything, I think that's probably the one. I think it was KU not getting to go to Kansas City. Yeah, and it was uh, Texas A and M not getting a better seat. Those were the two things that stood Tennessee out. Tennessee really. still pisses me off, but it's fine. Three one four three nine 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 six four six is the Air Comfort Service text line from the six one eight guys. If you had to pick right now, gut feeling, who's the bracket winner as of today? Alex, do you have one team that sticks out to you so far? I, I'm going to go chalk. Yeah, My winner say, is Alabama. But yeah, probably Alabama. I haven't really looked too much at it, but yeah, my gut would probably say after watching them perform against Mizzou, like their best players didn't play well in the first half and they still found a way to just wipe the floor with the Tigers in the second half. So I, I would probably go there with you in terms of chalk and Alabama. Yeah, Alabama is the team that I would pick as my team. Um, KU is really, really, really good. And if Houston's going to be them, good too. I don't blame you for that. So uh, this is going to be a year where I go a little more chalky than normal. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line. couple more questions. This one comes from the 618. Guys, if the Battlehawks end up winning the championship, do you think there will be a parade? And should there be a parade for them? <laughs> That's wild, man. I, I mean, if there's going to be... There should 38, be 38,000 people yeah. that show up for your games. And yeah, there will and should be a parade in my opinion. I just has any, but is it here or is it in Texas? Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> are you doing that in Texas where all the players are at? And I guess, I mean, we haven't seen the full season for the XFL since the first time around and it wasn't very successful. So you can't really ask, like, has there been a, like that would be the first parade for an XFL championship in XFL history, which is wild to sit there and say, well, and here's the thing too. If you think about playoffs, like the amount of hype that the first game got here in St. Louis, imagine what will happen in playoffs when it comes to the atmosphere in St. Louis. Like I wouldn't be surprised if the dome is completely sold out all the way around bigger parade with a championship, City SC or Battlehawks? 
Don't make me pick between the two. I hope we have to worry about that problem. That's asking. my answer. I'm just asking. It's a question. I'm just looking for an answer. I think the answer City. I'm not positive on that, but I think the yeah. answer City, but it's closer than I would have expected. Yeah, can you Let imagine how many way. people are going to be like wearing a Battlehawk mask and then wings down Market Street during a parade? Did you see Motherhawk yesterday at the game? Just incredible. <laughs> the, whole, the whole environment was like beyond my wildest imagination of what that could have been. Props to all of you for coming up with very creative costume ideas because they are very entertaining. In 15 minutes, we'll play a game of in or out. But coming up next, Katie Wu, the Cardinals insider for The Athletic here on BK and Ferrario. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Grant Francis, I'm Brandon Kiley. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. And right now we are very happy to go out to the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line to be joined by our friend and the Cardinals insider for The Athletic. You can follow her on Twitter at Katie J. Wu. She is Katie Wu joining us here on the show. Katie, I hope you had a fantastic weekend. How are you doing today? What's up, guys? I'm coming to you live from the uh, World Baseball Classic here in Miami. And by World Baseball Baseball Classic, I mean a single stall bathroom at the press level of Lone Depot Park because it is the only, I'm not kidding, the only quiet place in the stadium right now. Dominican Republic is facing Nicaragua. I believe it's the third inning. Um, It is an absolutely electric environment, but not exactly conducive for a a radio hit. Oh, well, you're where I used to eat my lunch in high school. (laughs) Oh, makes sense. Whoa, whoa, Katie, come on. I was expecting sympathy there. The level of commitment that Katie Wu has for these interviews is is, continues to amaze me. Now, real question, Katie, are, are you just standing in the stall or are you like standing on the toilet so nobody can see you in the stall? No, I really lucked out, and it's one of those, like, single-use oh, okay. bathrooms. Even better. Um, so I'm just hanging out, but, you know, if anyone wants to use it, sorry, not sorry, I'm going to be a little bit. <laughs> It'll be, be about 10 minutes, she'll be out of there, we promise. All right, Katie. I'm going to get some weird luck, for sure. Let's talk a little bit about the World Baseball Classic, because I wanted to ask you about Adam Wainwright's start from over the weekend. It. If you were looking for encouraging signs, I mean, the, the overall results, I think, were there for you. He didn't give up a ton of runs or anything. It was just the one. It came on the home run. But the velo was still kind of where we thought it was going to be. Average about 86 miles per hour on a sinker, and he didn't throw anything above 87. After seeing that from Wayno over the weekend of the World Baseball Classic, where are you at on him right now? I'm not. I'm still not really pressing any panic buttons, and I understand the velocity is still low, and I know that... Uh, Great Britain lineup, well, a huge accomplishment for them to get to the WBC. It's probably not the same as what you'll see at the MLB level. But um, I thought that Adam Wainwright put together a very Adam Wainwright start when you look at the stat line and the innings pitched. He was, if anything, efficient. Um, you you want to be careful. I kind of thought that there would be a little more velo ramped up because you saw how important this game meant to Adam. He's talked about it for weeks. Um, there's a clip of him praying on the field with his hands up. I've never seen him do that before. So I thought maybe the meaning of the game would translate into more adrenaline, but maybe Adam is just super composed and was able to get it done there. I'm not super worried about it. Um, again, we'll see it as it goes on. I We've said this before, and I understand that the velocity is still probably a little bit of a concern, but as long as he's getting out, does it really matter? That seems to be the Cardinals' MO for all of their pitchers lately. So we'll see. Going from his performance, Katie, to two that have really been entertaining with Lars Nupar and Tyler O'Neill. Tyler O'Neill had a four for four day for Team Canada, and we all know Lars Nupar is basically the king of his team <laughs> at the World Baseball Classic. What have you taken away from those two and their performances thus far? 
You guys, we're going to have to remind Lars that we knew him when he was just called up because he's like an international celebrity now, starting trends in Japan. Um, what a cool experience for Lars and what he's been able to do. I mean, just the way that he's embraced the culture and the way that the culture has embraced him, it's been fantastic. Um, I to see Tyler O'Neill also go the other way for that basis clearing double yesterday. Those are kinds of things that Ollie Marmol is going to be evaluating, even though those guys aren't necessarily with the Cardinals right now. He's going to be tuned in, watching games, looking at performances, looking at swing paths. You know, Lars certainly has given Ollie a lot to look at in uh, his, his few games at WBC, but really encouraging signs from two guys that figure to be uh, starting outfielders come opening day. Just their positions are still yet to be determined. Katie, does, does Lars and what he's doing, not so much on the field, but off the field, does that replace what they lost last season in Harrison Bader? I think so. I think it's what makes Lars Newbar such a special talent off the field. I mean, we could talk a lot about what he does on the field, but off the field, it's his charisma. He's a guy that can keep the clubhouse loose. He can keep up the energy, and guys, for whatever reason, have a difficult time getting mad at him. I mean, it is <laughs> he lives. He lived with Nolan Arenado in the offseason, um, and Nolan is a very intense individual. So those aren't necessarily personalities that you see meshing all the time, but Lars just has this like infectious energy around him. He's great with the fans. He's loved in the clubhouse. And, of course, it's much easier to do accomplish both of those things when you're performing at the caliber that he is. So nice to see a little bit of the personality come out for Lars. And uh, we'll just have to get him, guys. We're going to have to remind him when he comes back to the U.S. But just because he's an international star doesn't mean he, he can't have time for a St. Louis pal. On the position player side, the only other thing that I really had to ask you about would be Jordan Walker, who continues to just be awesome outside of uh, sliding into second, uh, hands first, head first. Everything else is going well for him. At at this point, is he on track, do you think, to to be on the opening day roster? And if so, how do you think that ends up shaking things out in the outfield, Katie? Yeah, let's talk a little bit about Jordan, feet first, Walker. (laughs) going forward um you know not again not a too too big of a concern for him with the right shoulder thing sounds like it was jammed again i'm not in st louis i'm going off of texts and calls but the overall concern does not seem to be super high um but are you guys ready for my hot take you know i don't give them very often and actually this is probably not a hot take this is probably the correct take are you ready yeah okay if we break camp today jordan walker is the starting left fielder hot damn hot take from the bathroom Hot take from the bathroom, trademark it. Um, <laughs> I think when, let me, let me, I would like to make this clear. I don't think the starting outfield competition is Jordan Walker or Dylan Carlson. I think there is a way for Carlson, Newbar, O'Neill, and Walker to play every single day. And I think there's also a way to incorporate Nolan Gorman, who's having a great spring, into that as well. We know that Ollie Marmol likes the fluid lineups. You know the Cardinals have a very versatile lineup. That's one of their strengths. I, I don't like the phrasing, and I'm not saying you guys are doing this, of course, but I don't like the phrasing that I see if it's Dylan or it's Jordan. It can be both. Both are having really solid springs. Um, but when Jonathan Mazzella comes out and says, you know, Jordan Walker is going to have a legitimate chance to make the opening day roster, and Jordan Walker does everything that he needs to do to prove that he can make it, I think it makes the decision easy for the Cardinals in terms of, yes, he should make it. The, the thing that is going to be difficult for them is how is he going to play every day? Well, and that was because I was one of those individuals, Katie, that you're upset with that said Walker or <laughs> <I know>. Carlson, <laughs> because the only reason I, I went that direction with it, Katie, is if Jordan Walker's up here, I, I just don't see a scenario where he's he's not in the outfield five out of the seven days in the week that they're playing. But, I mean, do you feel like that they'd be comfortable if he wasn't doing that? Or do you view it as he's going to be in the outfield a majority of the time? 
That's a good question, and it's a fair question because that's probably something that is going. But that's probably their biggest conversation: is how is Jordan Walker going to play in the outfield, and what's the amount they want to see him there? He's an absurd athlete. I mean, they, the joke is that he's a six-tool player, right? They had to create an extra tool <laughs> to uh, to capitalize just how good Jordan Walker is. And Dylan Carlson is a very athletic, versatile outfielder as well. So. There's a lot of things that can be, that they can do here. I mean, Tyler O'Neill, with his injury history, he could DH a little bit more. Of course, he's, a, again, a super athletic outfielder, so you don't want him to do it too much. Lars Newbar can DH as well. It's a good problem to have when all four of your outfielders, assuming Jordan Walker makes this team, are both good and are both athletic. So there's a way to incorporate the Jordan Walker playing four to five times a week in the outfield and still making sure Carlson, O'Neill, and Newbar get their reps as well. I'm not quite sure what that's going to look like from a Cardinals perspective. I do know the organization feels like it's feasible. It's just a matter of how these next two weeks play out. They're going to be so imperative in terms of competition and finalizing the final spots for the opening day roster. But it is a good problem to have. And I know spring training numbers are just that. But when you're looking at how this this camp has risen to expectations in what has been a very competitive spring, I think from the Cardinals front office side and the coaching staff side, you could not be more pleased. Katie, I need to ask you about your guy, Jake Woodford, because last year you were the president of his fan club and he's done nothing this spring to disappoint. In fact, he's added some more swing and miss stuff to his game uh, so far in spring training. Now they're going with him uh, later this week to start the game on Tuesday. So tomorrow, instead of Dakota Hudson, Hudson's going to be out on the backfields instead. Is Woody trying to make his way into the opening day roster here? Do you think that's going to happen for him this time? You know, the bullpen is so, so difficult to to kind of map out. I tried to do my own roster projection the other day, and I had to give up because there was just too, there's too many moving parts and too many people that have not come out and solidified their roles yet. Jake Woodford is one of those guys that's just had a fantastic spring. They've done exactly what, he's done exactly what they've asked him to do. Uh, the slider looks good with the vertical drop. There's more velo on the fastball. He hits more swing and miss. He's been hitting locations. I would hope for Jake's case that he is not one of those victims of options because the Cardinals have an ample amount of arms and some of them have those contractual obligations. But we've seen cases where that wasn't the case before, like Andre Pallante last year who made the roster and a couple of guys that had op- who did not have options did not make the roster. So if Ali Marmel is basing his decisions on competition, I think Jake Woodford makes the club, assuming his next start backs up what we've seen from him early in the spring. It's, again, a good problem to have, guys, because you look at the Cardinals rotation, you look at the five projected starters, everyone's kind of going along at a good pace. You have some considerable depth in Woodford. You'd like to see a little bit more from Hudson. But there's options here. And for the last two or three springs, there have not been options. Final question. We'll get you out of here on this one, Katie. Guillermo Zuniga. What do I need to know about this gentleman who throws 102 miles per hour and is apparently a member of the Cardinals roster? Yeah, you know, I was getting some questions about Zuniga in the offseason, and I just chalked it up to, you know, let's see what he has during the spring. Didn't really see much from during the spring. Definitely saw him take the mound for Columbia against Mexico due to that flashing at triple velo. He has a 90-mile-per-hour slider. He is nasty. Um, that's someone that the Cardinals, perhaps, is what I'm talking about with the bullpen guys. They have a bunch of underrated guys that aren't even really on, on fan base's radar because there's so many good arms in camp as well. I'll throw Andy Suarez in that list as well. They've really been impressed with his stuff in the left side. So, again, a good problem to have. I think there's been a lot of, of commotion about how the Cardinals didn't really address the bullpen this offseason, but they did in incremental ways that the Cardinals seem to do very well, um, or at least often. And for the 
for the first time in a while, it looks like that that, that decision is paying off. So right. we will see, but certainly someone to keep an eye out on. All right, Katie, I'm going to give you another chance for another hot take from the bathroom before we wrap up. Do you want to put <laughs> Guillermo Zuniga in the BK and Ferrario circle of trust? Oh, early. Oh, Oh, I don't know. This is this is a big honor. Who was the last person to make the circle of trust? Well, we don't like to talk about that because all of them probably were kicked out of the circle of trust after last season. Ooh. I mean, Stratton at some point, I think. Stratton, got in. Well, that's because T-Bone just throws everybody into the circle that's of right. trust. I think it was Helsley. It was Gallegos. I want to say Zach Thompson was in there. I think Thompson was in by the end, yeah. I like that. I like that group. Um, not yet. I think you have to earn this trust, at least for me. You have See, to earn it. Katie well, respects the circle of trust. Katie, that's why you're our insider from Katie, the bathroom. we appreciate the time as always. Go enjoy the rest of the baseball game. Get out of the bathroom. <laughs> we'll talk with you again next week. Watch there be a line when I come out. <laughs> I can't wait. Please you tell me there is. Tweet that out. You let us know what the scene was. And She's... walk out and say, sorry, guys, I had a burrito really early this morning. <laughs> Oh my gosh, thanks, guys. Katie, appreciate it as always. That's Katie Wu, Cardinals insider for The Athletic. Be sure to read her work over there. It is well worth the price of admission. You can also follow her on Twitter at Katie J. Wu. Alex, I wanted to ask her about Guillermo Zuniga yeah. because he was a guy that like jumped off the screen in his appearance for, I think it was Colombia the other night against Mexico. Uh, he is, uh, his stuff is nasty, man. I mean, he's got... 100-mile-per-hour velocity. He's throwing, as she said, a 90-mile-per-hour slider, and it's got crazy movement on it. It wasn't like he was going up against just anybody. He got Alex Verdugo out on three pitches, all of which were above 100 miles per hour, and he struck out swinging. He is somebody worth keeping an eye on this year because we always talk about like the classic candidate of who's going to be the next Luis Garcia. Uh, Zuniga might be that guy. By midseason, we might be talking about somebody that we didn't. Most people didn't know his name prior to the season, and then he ends up pitching the seventh inning for you. And Katie's not wrong. I mean, we did spend a lot of time talking about how they didn't address their bullpen, and maybe it's still true on the left side. But you figure with Zuniga, if this is who he is, and then Wilking Rodriguez, who has been impressive so far at times through camp. I mean, that's two guys that we didn't anticipate being a part of this bullpen on top of the fact that you're probably going to try and have to find a spot for Jake Woodford and or Dakota Hudson. So there are a lot of options that might not have addressed it in terms of name recognition, but in terms of stuff and swing and miss stuff, if Ali wants that, you might have more guys than we anticipated. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Grant Francis, I'm Brandon Kiley. If you missed any of our conversation with Katie Wu, be sure to check out the podcast page, 101ESPN.com. The free 101 ESPN app is where you can go to find it. It is all presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers. Coming up next, we're playing a game of in or out, 314-399-9646. If you guys have a scenario, we'll tell you if we are in or out. Coming up next, you're on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Come on, man. Are you in or are you out? It's in or out with PK and Ferrario. That's Alex Ferrario. He is Grant Francis, and I'm Brandon Kylie. It's time for in or out. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line. Let's start with this one. Alex, in or out, Pavel Buchnevich will be the Blues' number one center by the end of next season. I'm going to say out on this. Um, and I know I've gone back and forth because I comped him to Patrice Bergeron on Friday, and now I'm stepping away from that. But 
watching Buchnevich because what happened last night was the line wasn't doing well. Barubi takes the timeout. He puts Buchnevich up with Thomas and Cairo, and moments later, they get that tic-tac-toe goal. Pavel Buchnevich is best suited as the number one winger with Thomas and Cairo. The, the troublesome part for Craig Berube is finding how to make that line consistently work both ways because if you're going to keep those three together they have to be able to d- defend against the other team's top lines and they did so well last night against Jack Eichel but how do they do throughout an 82 game schedule so I know this stance is probably going to switch between now and the offseason but for right now I'm out on this because he needs to stay at the top wing and you need to find yourself a two or three centerman moving forward I'm kind of with you. I feel the same way about Buchnevich at, at center as I do with Brandon Saad on the first line. Like, if you're going to be a really good team, Brandon Saad should be about a third line player. I feel the same way about if you're going to be a good team, I think Pavel Buchnevich needs to be on the wing because, again, I think that's where he plays his best hockey. He can play center, especially like if you have injury issues throughout the season, he can easily slide in there and be consistent. But if you want to be a really good and competitive team, he's better served on the wing. Uh, I'm with both of you guys. I am out on this one. That being said, let me uh, let me make the case for it. Let me make the case as to why he could become this. Well, this is a lost argument because you just agreed with us, but go ahead. Because if Pavel Buchnevich ends up being on the dot, what we've seen from him so far at center, which is at least average. Man, he's great defensively. He's an excellent distributor with the puck. We know he's got the ability to be a 30-goal scorer. And if you just add in the fact that there's more value to a center than there is a winger, like if you're able to get that second winger that is a legit top six guy, maybe that ends up becoming one of the players that they draft this year uh, in the top five, potentially. Well, then now you've got Pavel Buchnevich with that young player, and you've got Robert Thomas and Jordan Kyrou. That does profile to be a top six that you can build around. So I, I see why somebody would ask this. I don't believe that it'll happen by the end of next year. I don't think it'll happen in general. I think he's eventually going to move back to the wing. But I can't see how it happens. He, he's got the skill set for it, at least. 314-399-9646 is the air comfort service text line for in or out. Alex in or out. Jordan Cairo will join Vladimir Tarasenko and Brad Boys next year as the only Blues forwards to score at least 40 goals in a season in the past 20 years. Jordan Cairo scores 40 or more goals next year. Man, the question you got to ask is, could he get there this year? You got 16 games left and Needs 10, 10 goals. goals. I, I mean, lot. it's going to be tough, but if you get another performance like you have where you put a hat trick up against the Columbus Blue Jackets. I would say in on 35 this year. In on 35 this year. I'm just not sold on 40 yet because I still feel like the growth is there for Thomas and Cairo. And next season, which might still be a transition year. Now, all of this could change if you get who I think they're going to get. And Connor Bedard, Grant, suck it. Um, If you get a Connor Bedard or if you're able to draft in the top four, you might have the talent to take that next step. But if you're drafting eight or nine, not saying that that player is not talented, but I still feel like the growth is going to be there. Two years from now, I'd say I'm in, but next year I'm out. I think I'm going to go in on this one just because this year is going to be the most difficult year for Jordan Cairo. You come into this season after last season where teams aren't really super familiar with you. And now this year, every team is game planning against you because you are the most talented player on the team. This was going to be the most difficult season for Jordan Cairo. And if he's putting up 30 goals this season, it leads me to believe next season is at least going to be a, a better for him bar- barring any injuries. So I'd say I'm in on this for next season. I'm in on this as well. Couldn't be more in on this. I think Jordan Cairo gets to 40 goals next year. And I think he becomes a guy that consistently gets 30 plus in his career. Like every season you can count on him 
for 30 or more goals, and you could count on him for a point per game player. Suck it, Alex. I think that's who Jordan Cairo is, <laughs> and it's why I'm so high on him moving forward is because you can have a guy who is excellent offensively while not worrying about what he brings to you defensively because it's not going to yeah, be You good. don't need that in hockey. I wasn't part of the question this time. <laughs> uh, in or out, guys, St. Louis will be first in line for an NFL expansion team after the Battle Hawks game this weekend. I'll start on this one. Should they be first in line? Yes. A resounding yes. They would need a new stadium, of course. But absolutely, the, the St. Louis should have an NFL team. Like, there's no argument against it other than the fact that the Rams ended up in L.A. and there was a whole bunch of this, you know, stuff like litigation that ended up taking place afterwards. And therefore, no, they won't be because the NFL will not hand St. Louis and team. I don't think ever again because of the litigation that took place. They don't like getting taken to court. And St. Louis not only made them go to court, they made them pay. They they made them bleed their own blood in the words of White Goodman. So, uh, yeah, I think they're. I'm out on this one. I would be shocked if St. Louis ends up getting an NFL team, even though they deserve one. You sued the NFL. Out on this. Yeah, I'm on the same page. If, you, if a friend sues you for $790 million, you're probably not going to be friends with him again. That sounded a little too personal, buddy. Uh, All right, guys, there is a little bit of news in the NFL. According to Adam Schefter, Chargers running back Austin Eckler has requested permission to speak with other teams about a trade after contract talks with the Chargers did not progress. Guys, in or out, Austin Eckler is going to be a Patriot after this uh, (laughs) offseason. Sure sounds like I would uh, say I'm in on this because a running back who can catch the ball and wants to get paid, that screams Bill Belichick. I'm going to play the field on this, though, and say I'm out okay. because another team's going to jump in. Uh, and when we get to our NFL quick hitters, I'll tell you which team that I hope Ooh, deep tease. it is. I think I think the Patriots do make a lot of sense, especially for a uh, struggling quarterback who, who needs some weapons around him. Um, but I'm going to say out on this as well. I just think there's there are other teams that need running backs a little bit more and it's more likely they're going to jump in before the Patriots do. I'm in on this. I think that the Patriots have opened up a good amount of cap space. They right now have $25 million available to them. The nice thing about contracts in the NFL is that most of it's not guaranteed. And so even if they give them a boatload of money, it's not going to cost them that much this year, and they could probably cut them two years down the road as well. I I think he makes all the sense in the world for a Bill O'Brien offense. He's coming back to the Patriots this year. Mac Jones needs an outlet to be able to throw to underneath I think Austin Eckler is going to be a Patriot. Other teams that I think make some sense. Um, there's a couple of them, but like if I was going to throw out a couple of legitimate contenders, the Bills and the Eagles are, are both teams that I think you keep an eye on here. But I know Alex is another one that makes a lot of sense for him as well. Guys, in or out, Jordan Walker will be in the Cardinals opening day lineup. Man, I hate this stupid outfield. How confused it makes me i love this outfield and i think it's going to be one of the best in baseball this year last week i would have set out on this and i would have been stern and confident now i gotta say i'm in on this unstern and unconfident which none of those are words katie Wu just told us and if you missed it go check it out on the podcast page 101espn.com or the 101espn app thanks to dobbs tire and auto centers she said that her hot take from the bathroom is that jordan walker makes this team and if jordan walker makes this team he is starting on opening day and his bat has backed it all up, so I'm in. I'm in on this. I think Jordan Walker's making the opening day roster. I think he's going to be your starter in left field. I'm convinced. I, got, I don't need to see anything more. Now, if he sucks the rest of spring training, maybe that changes things. But I don't see that happening. I think Jordan Walker's earning his way onto this roster. 
Personally, I'd say in, but from a Cardinals perspective, does this not feel like something they're going to kick down the road a little bit further? They haven't really done that. A lot of teams do, but the Cardinals haven't really done that and in I, the past. And I and think d- the draft pick compensation is going to be another reason why. Maybe. I just feel like just because all the other three outfielders are playing so well right now that they're going to give them a shot. But And then once once one of them falls off a little bit, then you call Jordan Walker up to the, to the big leagues. But it just feels like they're going to give the three that are playing well, aside from Walker, the chance to start the season That's for been me. my stance for the last three weeks, Grant, and everybody keeps making me change my mind. That's not what I want. That's what I think is yeah. going to happen. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Grant Francis, I'm Brandon Kylie. Coming up in about 15 minutes, Alex has a great junk drawer story for us today. But next, you guys have asked for it. We've got it. NCAA tournament talk, including <laughs> what our biggest takeaways are from the draws for both Mizzou and Illinois. Spoiler alert, love it for one of the teams, not so much for the other. Plus our gut reactions after our first look at the bracket next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. That's Alex Ferrario. He's Grant Francis, and I'm Brandon Kylie. What are the biggest takeaways that you've got for Illinois and Mizzou? For the NCAA tournament, we found out yesterday who they are going to be facing in the first round coming off of the conference tournaments. For Mizzou, they get Utah State. Big picture takeaway on this one, don't love it. For Illinois, <laughs> very different takeaway, Alex. They are a nine seed going up against the Arkansas Razorbacks, and i got to be honest with you, I actually really like that draw for them. I think Arkansas has been overrated all season long. I think it's a 50-50 game, don't get me wrong, but Arkansas is essentially a bizarro Illinois. Like, they don't shoot it very well. They play very good defense, and so this is two teams that are a mirror image of one another, and honestly, I just think Illinois is a little better, and they're playing better at the right time, so I'll take Illinois in that one. Let's go back to the Mizzou side of things, though. Utah State shoots the light out of the basketball. One of the best three-point shooting teams in the country. They've shot 39% from beyond the arc on the season. They're not very good defensively. And if you're looking for a reason for optimism as a Mizzou fan, they do not rebound the ball very well offensively. And that's been the single biggest issue for Mizzou at times this season. That being said, they've got one shooter, Stephen Ashworth, who has shot 44% from beyond the arc this year. If you think, like, for example... um, Demoy Hodge has been very good for Mizzou this year. Imagine like that kind of volume, but better. Shoots it as often as Demoy Hodge does, but shoots it at a higher clip than Demoy Hodge does. They also have like three other dudes that have made at least 53 pointers on the season. They're a really good three point shooting team, like excellent three point shooting team. That's my biggest concern with this game for you against Utah State. If you look at any of the analytics numbers, they'll all tell you Utah State is flat out a better team this year than Missouri is. I don't believe that. I care about who you play and who you beat. And by the resume, Missouri has a much better resume than Utah State does this year. But Alex, when you look at like, is this a good matchup? Is it an advantageous situation for Mizzou? I, I don't necessarily feel that way going up against Utah State. By the way, their coach, Ryan Odom, you remember UMBC? 
they they ended up having the 16 over the one seed against I think it was Virginia that year. Yeah, that that was his team. Ryan oh, Odom was the coach that was for the one UMBC. Where I crumbled up my day. damn bracket on yeah. which I usually seem to do that. The only thing, and I don't know much about Utah State, just the basic stats that you were looking at, and that was the first thing that popped out. A dude who's shooting 54% three point is just absurd. But you mentioned the rebounds. That was very um, that that stuck out to me. But also, it it seems that. Mizzou would have the edge in terms of the battle underneath the net, just in terms of size and ability in the paint. But then I also would give Mizzou the edge, and correct me if I'm wrong here because you'll know more than me, I would give Mizzou the edge in terms of depth of bench. Definitely. Mizzou is a deeper team, like a way deeper because team. Utah's got, got like six guys, basically. That was what that I was going to say. Utah looked like they had six guys and a majority, yep. I think like four of those six are just the three-point shooters. Mizzou's got seven or eight guys that can do an awful lot. That's where Mizzou's going to have the advantage. Yeah. If this game ends up, I don't know how they're going to call it. You never know going into a game how they're going to call the game. But if they end up they end up calling this game tight, typically that would not favor Mizzou. But because the way that Mizzou plays stylistically, mm-hmm. you don't want them to call it tight. But in this specific matchup where you're going up against a team that does not have any depth, they rely heavily, almost exclusively, honestly, on six players, and really it's five that play the vast majority of their minutes, Right. you kind of want them to call it tight because you want one of their guys to get into foul trouble, and now they got to pull from depth that they don't want to play. And Mizzou is notorious for keeping it close going into half, and if you do that, I would imagine because you have depth on the bench, you'll have the advantage in that second half. It really comes down to, one, the ability to defend that three-point shot mm-hmm. for Mizzou, and two, luck. And I hate saying luck in a it's basketball true. game, but whoever starts shooting hotter is going to be the one that's going to pull away from this You can one. say that about a lot of games, but this game more than basically any other in the NCAA it. tournament, that's going to be the what determines it. Which team makes their threes? And if Mizzou makes their threes against Utah State, I think they will win this one, and they potentially could win it going away. Because as you mentioned, they are the deeper team, and if they're making more threes, they're going to be the one that should be heavily favored in this matchup. And then they get into the second round, and they'll likely play Arizona if they end up making it there. Alex, people are going to call me crazy for this, and I get it. That's fair. I think Arizona is actually an interesting matchup for Mizzou, and Mizzou could beat Arizona. Arizona's a very good team, but stylistically, they play the way that Mizzou does. They're a little bit more like five-out type of style. That Keep an eye on that. If Mizzou ends up make, making it beyond the first round, they play on Thursday. So we'll be able to react to some of that during our show on Thursday while we're out at Alton, or in Alton at Max. If they end up winning that game, we'll talk about it on Friday. I, I, I won't pick Mizzou to beat Arizona, but I'll be shocked if I don't pick them at least against the spread in yeah. that one. On the Illinois side of things. I like this draw for them because I think Arkansas, like I mentioned, has always been a bit overrated. Agreed. They're good defensively, but they are not great defensively. I think it's overstated how good they are. And again, they cannot shoot at all. You know what the most frustrating thing is, Alex, when we get into March and you're watching your favorite team going up against somebody and it's late in a game? When your team can't make free throws. (laughs) Arkansas is terrible at the line. They shoot 69% this season from the free throw line. Thankfully for Illinois, that is the case because Illinois is somehow worse at the free throw line. They're 68% from the line this year. This is going to be a game that is determined by who makes their twos. 
The opposite of the Mizzou game, basically, is the Arkansas-Illinois game. Neither of them can shoot very well, and you're going to need your stars to step up. If Illinois stars step up, they should win this game, in my opinion. I'll be picking them to beat Arkansas. Yeah, I've kind of already, in my mind, picked Illinois over Arkansas, mostly because of the battles that I saw between Mizzou and Arkansas. You just felt like if Illinois figures out their issues in terms of inconsistency, they can keep that close. I, I would give the edge to Illinois over Arkansas, but the, the crappy part for Illinois is, well, the next, even if they win that one, pretty much uh, book your tickets for the offseason because you get Kansas in the second round. But, hey, that's an improvement, and I would say that's a success if Illinois can find a way to get out of the first round considering how the last few seasons have gone. All right, Alex, as you looked over the tournament for the first time, yeah. and you were looking into, okay, where, where am I? Where are my upsets going to be? Who's the team that I'm picking to get to the Final Four? So on and so forth. This is gut reaction. You can change any of this before we get to uh, Thursday and before we really set in, st- set in stone what our picks are going to be. Was there anything that immediately jumped out to you? Just like a surprise that ended up getting deeper into the tournament than you expected or a path that you really like, a path that you hate? What was it that stood out to you about this year's bracket? I think the one that stuck out to me the most, one, was Kansas, and we've already talked about that, just kind of how their path unfolded. I mean, that's a simple chalk for me where you go from starting all the way into the Final Four. I guess Houston was the one that stuck out to me a little bit because I thought Houston was going to dominate their path. If if, if they, they'll get through Northern Kentucky, but if they get through in Northern Kentucky, I, I mean, I guess I could see a chance that Auburn takes down Houston in the second round because Auburn has had their success and Houston does have a little bit of vulnerability. That might have been the only one. Houston and Texas being in the same bracket was a little bit of a uh, intrigue to me. But honestly, two of the four brackets in terms of their regions. It, it's straight up number one seed. I can see them going all the way to the final four. Yeah, I think the. I've got Kansas advancing far. I love Alabama going into this tournament. But I have the one to. that surprised me, though, was which region is this? It's the East. The East is super weak, dude. So you've got the number one seed that's Purdue in that region, but Marquette is the two seed. And then as your three, four, you've got K State and Tennessee. What surprised me is that I've been out on Duke all season, I've not liked this Duke team. I think they have a real chance to make it to the Final Four because of the region that they're in. Like, a real chance to be able to get to the Final Four. If they were in uh, the West, for example, no chance. No way would I pick them to get to the Final Four. But because of the region that they're in, and we know it's all about matchups, it's all about the way that you stack up against the specific teams that you're going up against, it's not about the quality of your team necessarily. I think Duke's got a real chance to be able to go to the Final Four. That would be the team, to me, that really surprised me with how far I had them going in my in my bracket. What about Kentucky as a six seed in the East? Same thing. Like, That's if a really... If you've got upsets that you think are going to take place, or if you want to have some upsets, I think the East is the region to pick them in. Purdue's very good, but they rely so heavily on one player, and he's one of the best players in the country, that they're ripe for the picking in terms of an upset. I don't think it should shock anybody if they end up losing in the second round. It also wouldn't be a surprise if they end up in the Final Four, but... That's your one seed, and I think they have the weakest 3-4 combination between uh, Tennessee, who I'm low on like you are, Alex, and K-State. East and Midwest are going to be my upset regions. Those are going to be my upset regions because I haven't decided yet, but I can see Houston getting bounced in the second or the third round. And then, I mean, Texas, the number two seed, 
taking on Texas A&M in the second round also. I mean, you might see a seven seed take down a two seed in the second round. Grant, was there anything as you looked over the NCAA tournament that stood out? No, not so much. Are you a big NCAA tournament guy? No, I don't really get into basketball too much, just in general. I'll follow as the season goes on, like as the tournament goes on, I'll follow the the, the team that is upsetting everybody like St. Peter's last year. But for the most part, I don't get into basketball too much. Okay, that's fair, man. Uh, The NCAA tournament begins with the first four on Wednesday night. Uh, So that's where it begins, and then we continue on Thursday. Looking forward to being able to broadcast those games, uh, or broadcast uh, live from Alton, Illinois, here on 101 ESPN. We'll be at Max in downtown Alton, and if you guys want to come out, we'll be there from 11 to 2. The Fast Lane will be there from 2 to 6. And how about this? You can come enjoy delicious food, the coldest beer, plenty of screens to watch all of the first-round madness, and so much more. Plus, this is new. We will have the chance for you to score a pair of tickets to see Metallica at the Dome on Sunday, November 5th. Again, if you're out there at Max in downtown Alton on Thursday or Friday, you're going to have an opportunity to win a pair of tickets to see Metallica at the Dome on Sunday, November 5th. So stop by live at Max in downtown Alton. We'll be there from 11 to 2. We're actually staying the night in Alton, so we'll be at Max most of the day, to be totally honest with you. The Fast Lane will be broadcasting from 2 to 6. Come on out. Say hello. We can all place our bets together over on the FanDuel Sportsbook. Coming up in about 15 minutes, how do we reasonably compare what Newt and O'Neill are doing in the World Baseball Classic versus what Walker and Carlson are doing in spring training for the Cardinals. We'll get into that at 1 o'clock. Alex, though, has a junk drawer story for us next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's open it up. The junk drawer with BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Fenton Bar and Grill. Best trashed wings in Missouri. Dine in. Carry out. Seven days a week. Alex Ferrario, what do you have for us today in the junk drawer? So uh, I had an official check mark happen to me as a parent on Friday. You know, you, you hit those moments when you're a parent, you're going to know this. Um, I don't know yet, but I will. When things happen to you, you know, the first time your your baby talks and tries food, the first time you got to change a poopy diaper, the first time they pee or poop on you. Well, I had the, the first official projectile vomit moment happen oh, on gosh. Friday. So my wife... Uh, she she was working at the salon. I went up to get a haircut, brought the girls with me. So we were driving home. And when we're driving home, my daughter's still in the car seat that's facing backwards. So, like, I can't see her face. She's staring at the seat. So we're driving, and, you know, she's talking and singing along with Frozen and things like that. And all of a sudden, it goes quiet. And I assume she fell asleep. And all of a sudden, she starts screaming. I'm like, okay, what's going on? Maybe, like, she lost her toy. And then you hear the noise that no parents wants to hear. And I mean, I, I, and I, there was 10 minutes still of me driving and the smell hit you immediately. My question though, and parents listening, you could text in 314-399-9646. I don't handle vomit very well. <laughs> and my wife and my wife also doesn't handle vomit. And like she was, it was everywhere. And so <laughs> I, I'm at this, I'm at this crossroad as a parent. 
to where I feel so bad for my daughter because it's the first moment she's experienced like this. Which, which daughter? It's our oldest, okay. our Adelaide, our two-year-old. So it's the first time she's experienced this. Like, baby vomit's one thing. This was yeah, like yeah. adult vomit. But on the flip side of it, I'm looking at her like, if I pick you up, it, I, I'm going too. <laughs> and so, so her and I just, we, we had this moment where we're staring at each other. She's crying. I'm trying to hold it back. So I do that moment where you're like, you don't want to touch anything, but I have to get her out of her car seat. So I picked the entire car seat out of the car. Sure. Because it just stayed on that. And I carried the car seat to the bathtub. I put her in the bathtub. So how far away were you from your house when this took place? Like 10 minutes away. We had okay. just gotten off the highway. And so like I got stoplights to go through and oh, it's cold outside. So you can't roll the window down. And so you're just basking in that smell the entire car ride. I, I got to tell you, I at that moment, I'm like, I don't know how I'm going to handle this moving forward because I don't do vomit well. So when you get home... I am curious what your move was as a parent. So you get home. So I took. You've the, got her in the car seat, yes. and you're going inside. Yeah. Do you put the car seat then into the tub? Yes. <laughs> the, the entire car seat went into the tub because with then, her still with in her it. still buckled in it because I'm telling you guys it was everywhere. And so I'm thinking, okay, well I'm gonna have to take this car seat apart because I'm gonna have to wash all the cloth on it and I'll have to wipe that down. And I don't want to get because I lucked out and it didn't get on the car. It just really? got in the car seat. So it was just the smell in the car. I'm like, okay, this is gonna be an easy cleanup. The problem was, how do you get a toddler shirt off that's got it all over her without getting it on the toddler? So like you got to take the shirt well, off. I mean, at this point, the toddler is she's Dude. just basking in the glory of Dude. her own spit up. It so. was it was brutal. So I got luckily I got everything off, and I turned the water on, and we gave her the bath. The problem now too is like the washing machine hasn't gotten it all out. So I'm still trying to figure out how to address this. But there is nothing worse than hearing that sound and not seeing it because I I knew exactly what it was, and all you the first sense that hits is the hearing. And then the smell picks sure. up, and you're like, son of a, you know what. So we have a number of texts that are coming in from all across the uh, the world, really. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line to get involved in the show at any point in time. Somebody said, and then Alex Ferrario decided to take her to daycare and drop her off and say, I didn't know what to do, didn't have an extra change of clothes. Is that going to be the <laughs> sentence that follows me for the rest of my life? And then Alex took her to daycare and dropped her off. Just take her to the babysitter. You oh, somebody said you should have just taken her and the car seat to the car wash. Just <laughs> spray her down. <That's, laughs> I mean, technically, I did do that. It's just in the bathtub. When with those clothes, I'm assuming you just throw them out immediately. No, I actually uh, you I, kept them. I rinsed them off in a sink. And then I threw him in the washing machine. I washed him three times because <laughs> I said, I'm getting all of this out. I feel like that's one of those where you decide, you know what? We don't really need hey. this shirt. We don't really need these pants. We're good here. I, I am just happy that the child is good. Someone said, get a new car seat. Believe me, if the car seat wasn't like $150, oh, I would have. Okay, so you know, now that we're on the conversation, we're doing our uh, baby registry right now. Yeah. How is everything so damn expensive? Strollers are like three hundred dollars. Uh, what's it called? The 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 play the the pack and play. Those things are like two hundred dollars. <laughs> Take it from me. You don't use the pack and play as much as you think you would. I understand. It's going on the registry. We'll see what happens from there. Um, the car seats are outrageously expensive. 
too, like, it's it ridiculous. never ends. We were, thank God, Kara's sister has two kids, both of which are now out of their crib, so they re-gifted us their old crib. So my sister did so with ours. So we got ours. a crib for free, so that's great. Um, we've got all the furniture for the room. It all matches. That That's fantastic. We got we were super lucky, and uh, we're thankful for that. It It is insane how expensive it is to just be able to allow a kid to live. Oh, <laughs> my nuts, God. man. Well, and I could get on another freaking bar stool with this and start ranting, but it's ridiculous how much they charge for diapers. It's ridiculous how much they charge for formula. Like, it's absurd. And I know somebody's going to text in, man, just use the disposable diapers, Ferrario, or the washable diapers. Well, you just heard my story with vomit. You think I'm going to yeah. handle washing diapers nonstop? But it's ridiculous how much they charge for all of this stuff. There's like a luxury tax that goes on all of these child things. So my wife and I get to the point where we're like, let's just get through the formula and then we'll be good. And then we had another kid. From the so, 636, do kids. Guys, my five-year-old had an had an issue this morning where she puked as well. You don't know how fast you can get your kid out of bed to the toilet until you hear that noise. And every parent knows exactly what I'm talking about. I was dead asleep uh, to the toilet in record time. I, it, I, it's It's a sound that you never want to hear because when you hear it, disaster follows and that's exactly what I felt like I was to the point where I said maybe I'll just pull off to the side of the road and I'll take her clothes off and ditch him and just have her ride in her in her car seat in her diaper but it's like there's no point in that it's already happened the smell is here and now we've got to figure a way out that's Alex Ferrario he is Grant Francis and I'm Brandon Kylie. coming up next how do we reasonably compare what Newbar and O'Neill are doing over in the World Baseball Classic to what Carlson and Walker are doing in spring training. We'll try to do exactly that coming up next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. He's Alex Ferrario. That's Grant Francis, and I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. So the Cardinals are trying right now to determine how you judge Lars Newtbar and Tyler O'Neill as they're playing in the World Baseball Classic and compare what they're doing to what you're seeing right now in spring training from Jordan Walker and Dylan Carlson. Alex, if you're looking at Lars Newtbar, he's been great so far. Six for 14, four walks. He's been on base 11 times. He's got an on-base percentage through four games, over 500. Everything you could possibly want to see out of Lars Newbar, you've seen it so far from him. Oh, by the way, he's made some like legit web gym type of plays in yep. center field as well uh, for his team. Then you look at Tyler O'Neill. This is in the first five innings of his game against Great Britain. We all saw what Great Britain looks like. They're not a great team, but uh, he was great against them. In the first five innings, he was four for four with four runs, a walk, and four RBI Oh, by the way, he hit the ball 106 miles per hour, 108 miles per hour, and 92 miles per hour on some of those hits, including a bases-clearing double. He's been outstanding so far for Canada as well. Alex, when you think about this competition in the outfields, earlier today, for those that missed it, we did talk to Katie Wu, and she said it, she thinks that it's wrong for people to be pitting Walker versus Carlson or Walker versus one of the current outfielders. She thinks there's a scenario where they just keep all four of them and play them all almost every day. 
How do you view this competition for the rest of camp? I mean, I did view it Carlson versus Walker, but after talking with Katie, I'm getting to the point where I'm viewing it as Walker and then a competition among the other three in terms of playing time. Because if this is what Walker is and you know the upside is higher for Walker than the upside for any of the three that we're talking about, maybe you could put Tyler O'Neill on that conversation because of an MVP status. But when I, when I watch those three, I'm getting to the point now saying, you're having all of them hit. How are you going to get these guys playing time when all three, not even talking about Jordan Walker, deserve to be starting for your team? We know the defense with uh, Lars Newbar. We know the defense with Dylan Carlson, the gold glove for Tyler O'Neill. And then when you talk about the offense, Dylan Carlson's going to get spring training talent, and you're going to start to see more and more talent for Lars Newpar and Tyler O'Neill. the tougher the competition they get throughout this World Baseball Classic. But watching Newtbar and O'Neill perform on this stage, and I get it's Great Britain, not the sexiest of names when you're talking about the pitching status, but when you're seeing them perform on that stage where you've got to ramp up the competition on top of having all of those fans around, and then you talk about Dylan Carlson in, in spring training, I believe in terms of competition, I'm going to start leaning more towards what Tyler O'Neill and Lars Newbar are doing than what Dylan Carlson's doing at spring training. Yeah, I I think I could understand however you want to read into this. Like I it really somebody on our text line it made a good point. I think they're right. You compare your outfielders based on the quality of the pitching that they're going up against. Lars Newbar is not hitting against Garrett Cole right now. Meanwhile, Jordan Walker did exactly that. I think there is some truth to that. The tough part, though, is, I, like, while, yes, Jordan Walker did have a hit against Garrett Cole, and it was a good one, um, he hasn't had all of his hits against Garrett Cole. Right. A lot of his hits have come against guys that are probably not going to see the big leagues this year. Maybe never will see the big leagues. And that doesn't mean that Jordan Walker doesn't get credit for that. I think you have to take that into context. It's all got to be taken into account with the context because like a, a lot of the guys that Jordan Walker's probably facing right now in spring training, especially late in innings, are guys that would start the season in AAA. Alex, the reason why I think it matters if he's dominating against those pitchers is because if he's already doing that against the AAA pitchers, does he really need to see them? Does he need to get seasoning against those guys, that level of competition, or... Does he need to be challenged a little bit more by coming up to the big leagues after he's already shown that he can dominate that level of pitching? So I've landed on the spot where I'm with Katie. As much as everybody is talking about this as being a competition between the four outfielders, I think what we're seeing is that they've separated. We're no longer having the same conversations about Alec Burleson that we were having a few weeks ago, a few months ago. I'm not even necessarily looking at Juan Yepes the same way that I was previously. I think the guys that have separated themselves this year in spring training are Nolan Gorman and your four outfielders. Yep. I think those five players will at some spot be in your lineup in like five out of a six day span. And I throw Brennan Donovan's name into that too, just Absolutely. in terms of being the everyday player. And Donovan's had an unbelievable yeah. camp. He's already got four home runs, I think in spring training so far. So you're in a really good spot with your middle infield and with your outfield. Alex, when was the last time we could say that about a Cardinals team? Or at least maybe even if you're not as high on the outfield as we are, there's upside with your middle infield and your outfield for the first time in as long as I can remember uh, since I've been covering this team. I mean, we had that slight year where you felt 
confident that Carlson, Bader, and O'Neill were going to be the outfield, but there still were question marks with it. You got to go back, and I don't even know if I felt comfortable at that time. I, I mean, for me to go back and say, like, I felt confident when it was Jim Edmonds and Reggie Sanders in yeah. the outfield, like, it, it's got to be before or after that. But I always feel like there were questions there because, yes, you had Matt Holiday as a certainty in left field for the longest time, but you were still trying to figure it out post John Jay of what center field looks I, like. That's why, because like I was going back to 2015, for example. That was an excellent team that like, year. Richick, they won 100 Piscotti. games. It was Borges, Holiday, and Hayward. And then eventually Good it became Grichik and Piscotty as well. Okay, but you never felt confident with Borges in center field. No, and Matt Holiday at that point was 35 years old and had some serious injury questions With DH, about him. he wouldn't even been starting in your left so field. So now you look at it compared to that, I'm taking this version. Not, not in terms of the level of production. I don't know what the production is going to be this year from these guys. But in terms of the excitement going in about what it could be, the hype, the anticipation, yeah, it, it's above that. I think it's all the way back to, and I've made this comparison a million different times. It's different because this was more proven that year. But what you have right now, this team reminds me of the team that you had in 2013. I think it has that kind of upside. And I know what that means. That team went to the World Series. And so you think back, you're like, BK saying that the Cardinals are going to the World Series. Hardy, hard, hard. Not necessarily. But I think they have that kind of upside. Yeah, I I do think this team can go to the World Series. And the outfield production is what opens up. It unlocks that possibility. I'm not saying that I believe this, but the naysayers will say yes on the offense, no on the pitching. But look back at the 2013 uh, pitching staff. I'm going to get in trouble. I'm, I, why do I do this to myself? Yeah, you Alex? do this on purpose. I walk into these this spots like, where people compared and they're, they're like, is, oh. This is me backing Colton Pareko. Like, I do it to myself every day. You don't have a 2013 Adam Wainwright on this roster. Let me start Even by saying better. that. You got a 2023 no, no, version of no, Adam no, Wainwright. No, 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 That's no. 10 years seasoned. You just don't have that guy. Like, he, he honestly, I'm not sure anybody has 2013 Adam Wainwright on their roster right now. And the reason why I say that is because he start, started 34 games that year, had five complete games, and threw... How many innings do you think Wayno threw that year? 225. 241. Good God, man. <laughs> That's an exist. Baseball a, doesn't even do that anymore. That's a dinosaur. That yeah. guy doesn't exist in the modern game any longer. So you don't have anybody like that. However, could you get a 2.95 ERA out of Jack Flaherty? Sure. He's not going to do it the same way that Wayno did. He's not going to throw an average of eight innings per start, but he could give you a 2, 2.95 ERA. That wouldn't shock me. Lance Lynn that season had a 3.97 ERA and gave you 200 innings. Could Miles Michaelis be that for you this year? He was last year for you with a better ERA, I think. Shelby Miller had a 3.1 ERA in 170 innings. Now, this one would be a little bit of a surprise. I could see Jordan Montgomery doing that, though. could Jordan Montgomery give you that? I could absolutely see Montgomery doing that. Jake Westbrook that year started 20 games for you through 120 innings. Jake Westbrook. Could Adam Wainwright be better than that for you this year? Yeah, I think everybody's expecting Adam Wainwright to be better than that for you. And then in the second half of that year, of course, that was the Michael Walker breakout season. You had a little bit of Joe Kelly Uh, that is basically what you're expecting this season out of um, Steven Steven and that's where I would say you don't think you have that because to get to the World Series you have to have Waka do what Flaherty did in 2019 right what do you mean didn't Waka in the second half he was really good he was 2.80 or a but I think Steven Matz could be really good this year that's that's the one I'm curious about Westbrook and Matz are the ones that I'm curious about in terms of if you're going to go to a World Series You've got to get better performances from them. But that goes to what we talked about last week. 
you've got the assets to upgrade your rotation at the trade deadline if all of these guys hit. My big question, you look at the bullpen for that team, Yeah, that's what I don't know if you have. Because that bullpen was dominant. Mujica, Rosenthal, Manis, Segris, and Choate. Those guys all had a sub-3 ERA that season. Uh, Segrist was unbelievable. That's six guys. Yeah. You, you You've felt, got two right now that I feel comfortable with. And, and that was the season where you started getting some of the contributions from some of your other young guys that were coming up as well from the bullpen. Um, Jaime Garcia was hurt for most of the season. Shocker, shocker. Who could have seen that one coming? Uh, Joe Kelly eventually became somebody that you trusted out of the bullpen as well. I mean, they just had a ton of arms that yeah. you were able to throw out there. And that that is my question for this team. If they're going to fall short. Actually, I'm less worried about the offense, less worried right now, right now about the starting pitching, more worried about what that bullpen's going to be compared to what you had in 2013. Because that was in some ways, like 2011, 13, those teams were kind of the start of this bullpenning trend across Major League Baseball once you got into the playoffs. So I'll be curious to see what that looks like. Coming up next, we're diving into some NFL quick hitters. It is the start of NFL free agency. One big-name quarterback is already off the table. Another one is holding everything up once again. Who could have seen this one coming, really? We'll get into some NFL quick hitters next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Things are happening in the NFL right now Ooh, alongside buddy. Alex Ferrario and Grant Francis. I almost nice. did it. I'm Brandon Kiley. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. Let's dive into some NFL quick hitters on free agency day where, Alex, it's legal to tamper. Oh, but you're not able to sign anybody, even though we've got all the terms laid out right in front of me. We all know how this works. God, it's tampering's with, the best. It's unbelievable. All these sports, the way that they phrase it. It's like, just it's free agency. Just like, open up free agency. Pretend, quit pretending. We all know how this is going to go. All right. Let's start with the first quarterback that is officially off the board. That's Jimmy Garoppolo. He is going to the Las Vegas Raiders on a three-year deal worth $67 million. It includes just $34 million that is guaranteed. Let me start on this one, Alex. I love it. I think it's a great fit for both sides. Jimmy G, good spot for him. And the Raiders, good signing for them. At a minimum, it gives them a backstop. We know what our floor is at the quarterback position this year. And if we end up getting a good situation where maybe we could draft a guy that can sit a year behind Jimmy G and we could develop him, great. If not, we've got Jimmy G. We're in a pretty good spot here. It's basically a one-year deal where they can decide next year if they want to bring back Jimmy Garoppolo or not. So I like it. I think it makes sense for both sides. Good landing spot for Jimmy G in my opinion. I think it's the best spot that Jimmy G could have gone is to be with Josh McDaniels again. And I mean, we, we all know me. I don't think Josh McDaniels is a great head coach. I think he's an awesome offensive coordinator, but now you got the ties in that they had back with the Patriots. And maybe this works now with Jimmy G and Devonte Adams. I like the move for the Raiders. I'd be surprised if they draft a quarterback, but like you said, maybe somebody drops down to that seventh pick or they find a way to move up a little and get somebody to be behind him for a couple of years. But that's a hell of a move for Jimmy G to go into a difficult division like the AFC West. But on paper right now and the rest of the offseason remains to be seen, I think I'd have the Raiders a little bit better than the Broncos now with Jimmy G and the Raiders. I think so, too. Uh, the other big n- news from earlier today, we mentioned it briefly. Alex, Austin Eckler is requesting permission to speak with other teams about a potential trade. 
I said earlier, I think the Patriots make a ton of sense for a guy like Austin Eckler. He fits the mold of what they've had at that spot in the past. Where is your favorite potential fit for Austin Eckler? Like um, if you're a fantasy football guru yeah. and Austin Eckler has been the leader on your team or you've got him in a keeper league, where do you want to see Austin Eckler land? So there's a lot of places that would make sense, but can can I admit something on the, the show now with, with you guys here? This is a safe space, so I would understand all of the listeners are not going to send hate text messages to us at 314-399-9646. It's never happened before. Why start now? Um, The best spot for him is the team that I'm falling in love with quickly. The Chicago Bears. Now, I know my boy Jordan Davis isn't there. And frankly, this is difficult for me, but I want... I want Austin Eckler to be a Chicago Bear with that dominant offense now. I that was the best move that Chicago could have done with their first overall pick is to still stay in that draft, get another first round pick, and then another pick, and get a legit number one receiver in DJ Moore. Before we move on to why you think Eckler fits there. Yeah. I thought they hit a home run. I I don't think they could have done any better with the compensation that they got in return for the first overall pick. You get a bonafide number one wide receiver. You add in a first round pick next year as well, which opens up the flexibility. I'm a Justin Fields fan. I believe it's going to be a great season for him with DJ Moore in the fold. But now you got two things. One, you added DJ Moore to be able to evaluate Justin Fields as a passer. That gives you an idea of we know this guy's a good wide receiver. We sucked at wide receiver last year. Now we've got a baseline level of talent that is necessary around him to evaluate Fields. Two, if Fields fails... As a starting quarterback this upcoming year, he does not develop as a passer. Well, now you've also got the ability to move up in next year's draft to go get your guy because you're going to have to do that if Fields doesn't work out. I think he will, but they gave themselves a lot of outs here. So I'm right there with you. And what you got in your arsenal is the ability to draft a difference maker at the ninth overall pick unless you decide to move up from there, whether you're going to draft an offensive lineman. I think I saw a mock draft that had the Ohio State offensive tackle going to the Bears at ninth overall, or you could draft a playmaker on the defensive side. They just signed TJ Edwards from the Philadelphia Eagles. Chicago is now a team that, again, I am falling quickly in love with and that's why I think Austin Eckler makes the most sense because their biggest weakness on the offensive side, albeit they got to figure out their offensive line, is the running back spot. I like David Montgomery. I like Khalil Herbert. Obviously, none of them have taken over. You want to spread the field with the abilities that Justin Fields has? Put Austin Eckler in that team with that offense, his ability to catch the ball and also be the number one running back? Tell me he's going to Chicago and I am just going to be head over heels for this team. All right. The other big moves that we've seen so far in free agency. Let's start with who a lot of people believe was the best free agent on the market. That's Javon Hargrave. He's a defensive tackle played last year, last three years with the Philadelphia Eagles was excellent for them, has been a dominant force in the interior of that defensive line. He is now going to San Francisco, Alex, where he is signing a four year deal worth eighty four million dollars. Man, you look at that defensive line. The 49ers have been just churning out defensive line talent for years. Their system allows these guys to play upfield, make plays in the defensive or in the offensive backfield. I love it for them. I don't think it's an exorbitant cost. It makes a lot of sense. $21 million a year is kind of the market right now for those star level defensive tackles. I love it. It's great for, for both sides. You don't see this very often. Have any real downside for it? I like the signing. I do too. How, how did San Francisco have such a dominant season? And I know you could talk about the offense that they have with McCaffrey and Debo Samuel and Brandon Ayuk, 
but it was their defense. They had the best defense in the NFC last season right there with Philadelphia, and now you just made it better by signing the defensive tackle from the Philadelphia Eagles. I mean, that's the scariest defense in the NFL moving forward with him, Armstead, and Bosa. It was a strong signing by the 49ers, and they were able to get rid of the Jimmy G question mark. So now you just figure out what you're doing at quarterback. Here's the thing that they did. The money that they had previously spent on Jimmy Garoppolo, they are now spending on one of the best defensive tackles in the NFL. So the guy that was their third string quarterback by the end of last year and gets hurt every season. What if we use that money on an elite level defensive lineman to put next to Joey Bosa and Armstead? Eh, Probably going to go pretty well. They don't really have a weak spot anymore. If you're going to argue it's the quarterback, fine. But Brock Purdy nearly took him to the Super Bowl last year. I'm another team that's making big moves, and that's the Denver Broncos. They have signed two offensive linemen already. Mike McGlinchey, formerly of the 49ers, and former Baltimore Ravens offensive guard Ben Powers. They're going to sign with the Broncos. Both were big money deals. McGlinchey signed a five-year deal worth $87 million to play right tackle for the Broncos. Power signed a four-year deal worth $52 million along the interior of the offensive line. They're trying to rebuild that line to give themselves an ability to evaluate Russell Wilson this year. Alex, I think it serves two. There's really two reasons why you do this. One, we get to find out what Russ is behind a quality offensive line. Two, if we end up finding out that Russ isn't the guy, next year we can draft a quarterback and we can put him behind at a minimum a good offensive line so we can then evaluate him. So it makes sense to me. I wouldn't have given this much money to those two specific players, but I understand the plan and it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I kind of feel like there were better offensive linemen available, whether it was through trade, if they could have accomplished that, although a lot of those assets were moved for you to get Russell Wilson or honestly sign guys via free agency. But I wouldn't doubt Sean Payton because he prioritizes his offensive line. I mean, that's what gained so much success for Drew Brees in his tenure because he was such a short quarterback. He had all the time and ability to find the open receivers. I I like the move. I'm still just not sold on Denver. I think there needs to be a lot more moves this offseason for Denver to sit there and say like, hey, we're back in the conversation at the AFC West. Even with those two signings, I still think the Raiders got better than what Denver is right now. All right, last thing here. This is the most recent deal that has come across the scroll. The Kansas City Chiefs have their new left tackle. He has not really played left tackle since getting to college. (laughs) Hold on. Let me do my math on this one. Yeah, it's been about seven years since Jawan Taylor last played left tackle. That's who they're signing. The former Jaguars right tackle previously at the University of Florida. He's signing a four-year deal worth $80 million dollars. It includes $60 million guaranteed. So basically it's a three-year $60 million deal is the way this will work. Then there's that team option on the fourth year. Alex, he's 25 years old. He was one of the best pass-blocking right tackles in the NFL over the last few seasons for the Jacksonville Jaguars. And the Chiefs got to see him in basically their offense with Doug Peterson as the head coach down in Jacksonville last year. So they know at a minimum this guy's an elite-level right tackle. Best case scenario, he's your starting left tackle for this year and for the next four years and hopefully for the next decade. Let's be honest. Worst case scenario, you've got a really good right tackle, but you're paying him $20 million per year to be your right tackle. My guess, and this is nothing more than a guess, the Chiefs are planning to take an offensive tackle in the first round of the draft. And that's the way that they make this money work on the offensive line with Juwan Taylor now in the mix. Their hope is Taylor can be left tackle, but if they if they are able to draft guy that ends up fitting better there, then they'll just kick Jawan Taylor over to the right tackle spot and they don't mind having a super expensive right tackle. That's my guess. What do you think of 
moving a right tackle to left tackle potential. I didn't think of the Doug Peterson tie-in, so that's a great point by you of basically seeing what he looks like in the Chiefs system, and now, of course, you can allow Patrick Mahomes to have more time to throw the ball rather than run and get injured like we saw this past uh, postseason run. But, I mean, just looking at their offensive line, they're pretty much stacked if they can get the right guy in the draft for that tackle. Ideally, I guess you'd look for a left tackle who can become a stud, and then you've got your right tackle and you're set at offensive line. Are, are they trying to build what the Dallas Cowboys had for that stretch of time where it was the most dominant offensive line in football? I mean, maybe, because they're, they've spent a ton of resources on the yeah. offensive line. You know, they've got, they got a, some young kids, too. One of the highest-paid left guards in the NFL. <laughs> they've got now one of the highest-paid right tackles in the NFL if Jawan Taylor ends up staying there. And then they've got two big-time interior offensive line that, linemen that they've drafted. Uh, it, it's interesting. It's a big risk if they end up playing him at left tackle, a spot that he hasn't played much of over the last you know decade yeah, of his life. Orlando Brown. That's I think that's what they're hoping is that it, it ends up working out better than Orlando Brown did. I'll say this: I think he's going to be better next year than Orla- Orlando Brown will be wherever he ends up going. If I had to guess, I think Orlando Brown signs with the Browns. Or oh, excuse me, the Bears. the Bears. Let's go. I think he ends up signing there. That's the one that makes I, the most I think sense I'm officially me. a Bears fan. Guys. We have not mentioned the one other guy that is not technically a free agent, Alex. Aaron Rodgers has not made his decision clear, Boo. at least publicly, on what he's going to do. What? What? Why? Why, Aaron? Do just... Can we just get this done? Can just we just say get it's this the over damn with? Jets, man. Nobody needs your big like press conference to find out where you've decided to go to. The entire New York Jets ownership group flew to you. Just say that it's the Jets so we can move on and you can stop making BK and I miserable. He's Alex Ferrario. That's Grant Francis. I'm Brandon Kylie. Coming up in 15 minutes, we'll hit the rewind. But coming up next, we continue our countdown of the 20 most important Cardinals for 2023 with a guy who better be locked down in the bullpen. That's next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. And now, the 20 most important Cardinals for the 2023 season on and Ferrario. Number 12, Giovanni Gallegos. The 0-2. Got him! The strikeout for Giovanni Gallegos. The Cardinals hold on. It's a shutout. 2-0 the final, and they take 2 of 3. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Grant Francis, I'm Brandon Kylie. We continue our countdown of the 20 most important Cardinals for the 2023 season with number 12 on our list, and it is Giovanni Gallegos. Alex, I was the lowest on Gallegos on our list of the 20 most important Cardinals. I had him at number 17. You and T-Bone were both very close with him. You had him at number 12. Tanner had him at number 11 on his list. Gallegos has been a model of consistency over the last four seasons at a position where you don't see that much. He has been excellent over the last four years. He has appeared 212 times and he has a 2.85 ERA. That's amazing. And over the last two seasons specifically, he has a 3.02 ERA in 21 and a 3.05 ERA last year. I did think he was a little worse last year. He got hit hard more often, especially early on in the season. He didn't have quite as much swing and miss stuff at times, but you look at the back of the baseball card and it looks remarkably similar. Best case scenario for Giovanni Gallegos this year is what? He fights with Ryan Helsley for the closer job. 
And the reason I had him so high on my list was because of that. If you lose Giovanni Gallegos, your bullpen's in shambles because you have to have two pillars that can at least hold it up through the bad times and the good times. And that's Helsley and Gallegos. And without one of those two and without the best from Gallegos, this bullpen is going to be the biggest liability for this Cardinals team. We talked about 2013 as the last time we were really hyped about the roster. Edward Mujica that season is what best case scenario for me is Giovanni Gallegos because you've got your closer and then you've got the number two closer who can come in when you're overusing Ryan Helsley. So that's best case scenario for me with Giovanni. Yeah, I think that's where I'm at with him as well is he is an you've got a closer by committee in some ways where if you're gone back to back already with Ryan Helsley and I don't know what they're going to do with him this year where it's yeah like last year remember there were always the quotes that came out from Ali Mamre where he said we'd rather have Helsley healthy at the end of the year than in the middle of the season that's when we really need him to go back to back and by the end of the season they took the training wheels off of him but early on there was a lot of we're not going back to back we're not really doing like two it was kid gloves throughout the season with Ryan Helsley. I wonder if that's going to be the case again this year, and I do think that will influence how they utilize Giovanni Gallegos. The nice thing with him, he doesn't really have splits. You can use him in any situation. He's proven that he can close out games if necessary for you. He ended up with 14 saves last year for the Cardinals as well. That's kind of how I view him going into this season too. The reason why I think that I might have been too low on Giovanni Gallegos is because of the worst case scenario. The worst case scenario for Gallegos is that this is the year that it all blows up. He's going to be 31 years old. Maybe the swing and miss stuff isn't there the way that it was previously. And he proves that he's not capable of being in that eighth inning. And in this scenario, Alex, I'm not predicting it, but in that scenario, that worst case scenario, man, who is pitching in the eighth inning for the Cardinals? I genuinely don't know the answer to that question. And that's why I think I, I thought we would see more from some of these other relievers in spring training and like Hicks would be one of them. He's prior to this weekend had not been good for any of spring training. He was very good over the weekend though, throwing 102 miles an hour again. I think Gallegos is like the linchpin of this bullpen. He's the guy that makes everything else work because everything else clicks into place around him. Worst case scenario is not something that the Cardinals want to see. Worst case scenario puts this team back in this fridge conversation where we're sitting here talking like, how are they going to fare this season in terms of positioning in the playoffs? Are they just going to slide into a wild card? Can you win the NL Central? You don't even have those conversations in terms of fighting for one of those top spots in the National League without Gallegos. And that's why I had him so high. You lose him, you got nothing. Because I'm not sold on Jordan Hicks. I'm not sold on guys like Andre Pallante and Genesis Cabrera and Zach Thompson as those late inning guys. Maybe a Zuniga, maybe a Wilkin Rodriguez can take over that spot kind of like Gallegos was when he bursted onto the scene. But worst case scenario for me with Gallegos is he becomes unreliable the way that um, Hicks was last year and the way Genesis Cabrera was last year. That's the tough part with relievers is you never know when it's going to happen. Yeah, man. And it's it going to happen. It, it can snap like that. You can go from being one of the best relievers in baseball to being a guy that's out of the league in three years. Ask Andrew Miller. He was when the Cardinals signed him. It was a smart addition. And then he was just fried. Your arm goes out, it gives out, the injuries start to pile up, the velocity goes down, and then suddenly, instead of getting 12 strikeouts per nine innings, you're at eight strikeouts per nine innings, your stuff gets hit a lot harder, and now you're not effective. It goes so quick for relievers. So the hope is that you get something resembling the best-case scenario. The belief should be that he looks something like what he did the last two years. 
because that's what he's proven so far. And until that changes, there's no reason to believe otherwise. So at number 12 on our list of the 20 most important Cardinals for 2023, it is Giovanni Gallegos. We'll continue our list tomorrow with number 11 on our countdown. By the way, you can join me on Wednesday from 5 to 7 at Hooters in Fairview Heights. It's at 301 Marketplace. You can kick off St. Patrick's Day and the college basketball tournament with me out there with a bikini contest that night starting at 8 o'clock. Are you going to be in a bikini? No, I don't think so. They're not paying me enough for that. Uh, Plus, you can enjoy the two new basketball bundles of Hooters World Famous Wings, Buffalo Shrimp and Fries, served up with an ice cold beer. It's all this Wednesday, 5 to 7 o'clock with me at Hooters in Fairview Heights. Coming up next, we'll have the BK and Ferrario Rewind here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's run it back with a daily rewind on PK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Stewart's American Mortgage. Google the bagel loan featuring zero fees and zero closing costs. Alex Ferrario, that is Grant Francis, and I'm Brandon Kylie. Hey, get signed up to play in this year's Bracket Madness Pick'em Challenge at 101ESPN.com. You can fill out your bracket there. It's free to enter this year's top score, taking home a $250 Fanatics gift card and a 101 ESPN prize pack. It's all at 101ESPN.com, and it's brought to you by Neutral and Twin Peaks. Alex, we talked a little bit about the NFL's free agency and how there's a bunch of moves that are getting done. We also brought up Aaron Rodgers, who was missing. Miserable. According to Trey Wingo, though, he's hearing that Aaron Rodgers to the Jets is a done deal. He adds history is about to repeat itself between New York and Green Bay. Time is indeed a flat circle. So it sounds like Aaron Rodgers is expected to head to New York as expected. If only he just would have said when he started his career that Brett Favre is going to be my role model moving forward because he's he basic- said the opposite. He said he doesn't want to be anything like he's him. He's everything like him. Minus the attitude, because apparently he's uh, very much loved by his teammates at times, has hands on them 24-7. But, like, why are we acting like this is big news and waiting around for Aaron Rodgers to say it? Again, you had the owner, the general manager, the head coach, the offensive coordinator. Hell, they might as well have the owner's wife follow them with them to meet Aaron Rodgers. We all went to him. You went to talk, and then nothing. Like, we know what this is. Aaron Rodgers, go to the Jets, be miserable, act like you're going to make them a Super Bowl contender, and then walk off into the darkness retreat once again. I think I'm starting to hate him as much as you dislike him. Welcome to the club, buddy. Welcome to what I said earlier. Hatred fuels good things. Something like that. Something like that. Guys, if you missed anything from today's show, be sure to check it out on the podcast page, 101ESPN.com, and the free 101 ESPN app is where you can find it. It is all presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers. Had a great interview with Katie Wu earlier today. She gave her thoughts on why she believes if the if spring training ended today, Jordan Walker would be on the opening day roster. 
We also talked a lot about the NFL. We talked a little bit about the World Baseball Classic and gave some thoughts on the XFL, the Battle Hawks breaking the record for the attendance uh, record in the XFL and City SC starting 3-0. and They have officially changed our expectations. We'll talk a little bit more about that tomorrow. Tanner Hendrickson going to be back. Grant Francis has done a fantastic job over the last couple of days. Thanks for still uh, stepping in for T-Bone while he's out, man. You didn't call me Tanner once today, BK. Uh, it was an impressive awesome by me. Look, I did it just the made first segment on Friday, and today I, I avoided it. I avoided <laughs> the problem. Coming up at the top of the hour, coming up at 2 o'clock, the fast lane is going to be joined by one of CDSC's two goal scorers from the weekend. Kyle Hebert's going to join the nice. show. Excited to hear that. He was outstanding. Two goals on the season. City SC is 3-0. and The Battlehawks are out here breaking records. Jordan Walker is going to make the opening day roster. Everything's going well here in St. Louis, and we'll talk to you guys tomorrow at 11 a.m. The fast lane's coming up next. You've been listening to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.